Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on this fine and uh, up here in Canada, at least thunderously overcast uh, Sunday afternoon. It's nice because when we have these chats, it's a lot better for me if I don't have to drag myself in from my addiction to vitamin D, which uh, everybody in Canada has because we have so few years, uh, so, so few months a year to be able to enjoy it. So thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us this afternoon. Now, unless my memory for odd acronym names uh, escapes me, I think we have some new people who've joined us on the, um, uh, on the chat today. So if you would like to, uh, take a minute or two to uh, introduce yourself if you haven't uh, chatted with us before and uh, how you found the podcast and how you're finding the podcast, uh, that would be great. Just feel free to jump in. Uh, don't worry if you talk over each other. Um, I have, uh, um, for those of who had he headphones, I've upgraded my Skype. I actually have a mild electrical shock capacity now. So if you do go a little bit high, then uh, you'll just, it's a, a little shock, but it uh, also helps with the podcast as well to make them seem more coherent. So uh, if you're new to this chat, if you would like to just sort of say a, a word or two and introduce yourself and uh, how you ended up here, I would appreciate that. Uh, hey guys, what's up? My name's Matt. Um, I'm the guy with a name you can't pronounce, the LJ. Um, I've been listening to the show since uh, I started listening around show 60, huh. and since then I've listened to you know every one of them. Is that <laughs> but right? But of course, I haven't caught up on donations yet though. So <laughs> Don't get me on that one. But, okay, um, yeah, uh, sorry. I, I'm actually going to have to give you a larger shock than I was talking about before then. <laughs> so if you hear a bit of screaming, that's just a, our view of Milgram's experiment. It's just a, another way of doing that. Uh, yeah, that was a good one. Um, yeah, I've been, I've been wanting to join the uh, Skypecast, but unfortunately I usually work uh, Sundays. So. Uh, so you're this a preacher? This will be my first time here. <laughs> no, not exactly. Not exactly. <laughs> and uh, maybe, who you, knows? Uh, go ahead. Maybe I'm a spy. Maybe I'm a spy. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> I'm maybe I'm infiltrating them. I don't well, know. you know, we're a we're a powerful group to infiltrate. So you know, <laughs> here's where you'd want to be. Now, uh, how did you uh, how did you first find the the podcast? Well, actually, I was listening to um, I'm a gold member over at the Infidel Guy. Oh yeah. Uh, show, and I heard your uh, you were a guest on the program. Uh, discussing market anarchy, and uh, that's when I first heard about you. And uh, ever since, I've been uh, helplessly addicted. Oh, that's, that's good to hear. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I remember that show quite well. It was one of the first ones that I did. And I don't think he knew exactly what he was getting into because uh, he, said, he said, you know, hey, tell us your story, right? And I started on the argument for morality. And, you know, there was a howling wasteland of dead air afterwards. Dead air afterwards. Oh, we have somebody oh, who joined us. Who's an echo. If you could, uh, I think we got it. Okay, good. Yeah, so there was this sort of howling wasteland of dead air afterwards because he's like, oh, argument for morality. Well, this should make for some great radio. <laughs> Are you actually a philosopher? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I just wanted a talking head who'd get people to call in. So, but uh, kind of them off guard. I think I think I did, but certainly when yeah. the callers came in, uh, it was a bit, it was a lot more fun. But uh, he certainly has a great show. So. And uh, somebody else who's uh, who's new? Would you like to sort of uh, mention or say hi? Somebody needs to be muted. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to uh, mute everyone because we sort of have this problem every uh, uh, every week. So what I'm going to do is mute everyone. And if you could uh, say uh, in the chat, if you want to say something, that would be great. Then I'll unmute you. But uh, because we're not sort of following the format of one person calling in at a time, which I think is sort of better, 
then uh, we will uh, we'll sort of do it that way. So if you do want to say something, uh, just uh, mention something in the uh, in the chat, and uh, I would uh, uh, I would uh, appreciate it. And then we will get you to uh, to sort of unlock we'll unlock the audio from there. Stefan, are you can you hear me? I certainly can. This is Heron. How are you doing? And I'm doing fine. I'm a little confused. I'm looking at my window, my browser window for the free domain Skycast, and it shows you as not being joined. And uh, apparently you muted all the mics, but on my screen, I'm not seeing that any of them are muted at all, and I'm not muted. Yeah, what so I'm I've, just, I've, I've inserted myself into the Internet. It's sort of a virus. Uh, so oh, I see. it's going to be hard to see that. No, it says the same thing on my screen. It says not joined, but I'm. Closed. But you still have the ability to mute. But you, you, you can't. It's like I say, you, you didn't mute me, and none, and none of the things I see are muted. If you're not logged in as the host, I don't think you have the ability to mute mics, do you? Uh, I certainly do. I haven't muted everyone yet. I just sort of wanted to just just because I asked people to introduce themselves, oh, okay. and they may not be in on the chat yet. I thought yeah. I'd give it a few okay. minutes before muting everyone. Oh, okay, okay, good. Then never mind. I was just curious what was going on. No problem, no problem. Actually, we have a confessional. Uh, uh, Charlie has said, uh, uh, I'm trying out my MacBook with the internal mic, and it's screwing up. Uh, oh, so yeah. That was only Wintel. You can mute me. I probably won't have anything to say anyway. Uh, shocking, unthinkable. Can't, can't imagine. Imagine people who have nothing to say not saying it. Yeah, shocking. Uh, the whole media would shut down, I think, except for us then. At that point, we would be the lone voice of reason in the Internet. Yeah. Well, the lone voice. Right. <laughs> now, I, uh, I guess I'll start with sort of saying something that's interesting and has provoked some thought in myself, and we sort of open that up for discussion and then for general topics that other people have, uh, podcasts, uh, pet issues, relationship issues, uh, medical issues, all the stuff, you know, which we're fully qualified to talk about. But um, uh, the, uh, the thing that was interesting for me was that I wrote an article that was rather fiery, I guess you could say, or you could say almost incendiary, about the, um, the Middle East. And uh, basically the, the gist of the article, I won't read it, but the gist of the article was something like this, that if people want to believe in these collective fantasies like Judaism or Muslim or Arab or... Uh, Israel or, or Jordan or Syria, all of these collective fantasies that don't exist in reality, as we all know. From space, you don't get to see anything about borders except for the defunct Chinese wall or the Great Wall of China. But uh, I did sort of find that uh, in the media conversations about the uh, Middle East in general, there's lots of uh, foo-faff about how to solve it. It usually has to do with appealing to the Security Council and things like that. And one of the things that I pointed out in this article is that you're allowed to talk about anything in the world except the real solutions. It's kind of a very interesting fact of, of life or of being a commentator that as long as you're willing to talk about uh, something which can't solve the problem, then you get all of the listeners in the world. But very unusual relative to my normal outlets for writing on publishing articles, uh, every single one of the people who've published me in the past uh, and a number of people who have not published me in the past have all refused to publish this article. So it's kind of interesting because I say in the article that well, of you, can course. Talk, yeah, you can talk about anything except the real solution. And uh, the interesting thing is that uh, I'm kind of getting confirmation of that theory at the moment. Which is Absolutely. Kind of interesting. And so it sort of has, has struck me as very interesting that I can certainly understand why people would not want to publish something along those lines. Because... Everybody who is, I guess except for me, and maybe a couple of other people as well, but everybody who is a, a commentator or runs a website with opinions or podcasts or something, 
don't want to alienate their core audience, right? So some of the outlets that I normally would publish in are very sort of libertarian-friendly, but then they have other collective, uh, collectivist concepts that they would be more uh, positive to. And so it's interesting to me that sort of the independence, even within the libertarian movement, doesn't seem to be quite as strong, that everyone has a line within themselves or within their own consciousness that says, okay, well, I'm not interested in irrational collectivism except for, you know, X, Y, Z, and it's that except for that I found sort of very interesting. So I'm still sort of struggling to find a media outlet for an article which says, if you want to solve the problem of the Middle East, then you need to get rid of collective concepts that people have allegiance to over and above their own conscience and sort of rational objective reality. And until you can get rid of those things, and we know the exact solution, because although the Middle East looks very foreign to us, uh, it's not. I mean, the Middle East is actually a much more civilized mirror of what was going on in uh, Western culture four, 400 years ago. I mean, the fact that uh, uh, we had uh, no separation of church and state throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance up until the later Enlightenment, the fact that we had no separation of church and state, that skepticism was not uh, part of the public debate about collective concepts, either in terms of of religion or statehood or the aristocracy and so on, it's very easy for us to see what the Middle East looked like, just go back into history books within our own, within our own culture. And the, the way to solve this was very hard for the West, right? Because the West found it hard to solve the problem of collective violence because we were sort of the first to go down that road, something that we inherited from the Greeks and the Romans, right? A sort of pantheistic skepticism towards uh, religion and the unity of church and state, although in the Greek and Roman traditions, skepticism towards the state was not nearly as common. But it's very interesting to me that the solution is completely obvious. We've gone through it ourselves. We're backsliding quite a bit now. But you can't talk about that solution. The very solution, the very, the very uh, cure that we apply to our own societies to deal with the problem of religious and collective violence and has proven to work quite beautifully, if not permanently, because you know, we, we're continually backsliding because everyone's educated by the state. But to me, it's quite fascinating that we know exactly how to solve this problem Separation of church and state, skepticism towards religions, skepticism towards um, uh, collectivist concepts, and nobody uh, 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 that I have seen has talked about it at all, and it's been quite instructive to me that nobody who normally publishes my stuff, which is not exactly mainstream, has uh, seen fit to publish this. So I just wonder to some degree what people think about that in terms of the freedom movement or whether there is a line that people don't want to cross in terms of offending others, but I'm just not sure exactly why you would want to not offend people who are logically incorrect, like people who believe in these concepts like Judaism and Islam and, and Israel and so on. I'm just not sure why not offending people has become so important in a movement that uh, is, seems uh, to a large degree not afraid to pursue uh, new lines of thinking or more rigorous ways of approaching problems. Can I comment, please? Sure, go ahead. Yes, this is Heron again. Uh, I think it's all the more reason for you to continue to send any article like that to them over and over again, because at least the people who are rejecting you are reading it. Huh. And, and I think in, in the long run, history is on our side. And uh, even if you don't get published by them, the people who are rejecting you are reading it. And the tenth time they read it, the fiftieth time they read it, in a different perspective from different people, some of those people are going to get it. Hmm. You know, and those are the people. Uh, those are important people that need to be uh, converted, if you will. I mean, the chances of them really being converted are probably slim, but uh, still, that's the job. So, uh, you know, you just keep doing it and, and expect the rejections. But occasionally, you know, one of these times, somebody's going to accept it. 
and uh, and then we will have another cohort on our side. Well, that's interesting, and I wonder, I wonder, and I don't know if this will be the case or not, but now that I've sort of shown my hand about somebody who has skepticism towards all collectivist concepts, whether there will be any challenges around getting other stuff that isn't directly in this vein published uh, in the future, it will be interesting to see. Well, but you still have your own outlets anyway. You know, uh, the thing is, is to put these, like, continue to put these ideas out. That's all we can do, is to continually put them out as prolifically as possible and, uh, and trust <laughs> that uh, there are some people out there who are ready to wake up. Yeah, and uh, see, to me, I, I don't like the idea that you sort of try and force people not to believe in their collectivist concepts. That sort of wasn't the thrust of my article. Not that we should. I mean, if you want to beat your head against a wall, you can beat your head against a wall, but then complaining about a concussion seems to be rather silly. <laughs> like, what I'm trying to do is just point out that yeah. there are very inevitable consequences to believing yeah, in yeah. collectivist irrational absolutes, especially in the ethical Well, realm. really, the whole, I mean, one of the things I've been talking about a lot lately is really the end of the era of nation states and the end of religion. That those are two ideas that uh, maybe made sense uh, a couple thousand years ago or 500 years ago even, but uh, they're nonsense now, and it's time we start saying it. Being a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or an atheist, for that matter, uh, or an Amway salesman, they're all insane. And, and you really, you know, anyone who is committed to some religion is really incapable of, of even in, in, entering the discussion. <coughs> Yeah, and I think that there is quite a lot of denial that people want to have their cake and eat it too. And I just sort of want to point out, just as any doctor will say, you know, you can smoke, but there's risks associated with smoking. And if you do get right. sick, you can't yeah. complain about it. Yeah, it's not right. that I'm yeah. saying to people don't smoke. It's just that if you're going to have these collectivist concepts, then you're going to end up with wars in the Middle East. You're going to end up with yeah, wars absolutely. in Bosnia-Serbia. Yeah. You're going to end up with wars all over the world. Well, and you're going to end up with murders in bars too. I mean, it's all related. The whole vi – I mean – you know, it's, it's, yeah. And so I'm people sorry. don't really like the idea of those being the inevitable consequences of their ideas, right? Because people associate these ideas with a kind of virtue. And pointing out that uh, for humanity to continue to believe, I mean, it's one thing to believe in these kinds of things when you're a sort of primitive culture, but with weapons of mass destruction and biological chemical warfare and so on, it's become, uh, the stakes have become a little bit higher for error, right? I mean, now it's not just uh, murders in bars or localized wars, but the capacity exists to do some pretty serious damage in the world, not just to people, but to the environment as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's uh, become a little bit more important to talk about these ideas. And I'm sort of plowing my way through Sam Harris's um, uh, End of Faith, I think it's called. And uh, it is something that you just can't talk about, right? You can't sort of say uh, that, uh, you know, if George Bush says, you know, behind every decision in the world is a just and all-loving God, uh, you then can't say that behind uh, uh, every uh, dis decision and idea in the world is a just and all-loving Zeus. Well, people would recognize that that's pretty much ridiculous. And they just, it's just something that you still can't talk about. And I just find that quite fascinating because in the you know, two, three hundred years ago during the later Enlightenment phase, it did become the case that you could talk about these things. And now we sort of seem to be backsliding into a medieval kind of thinking. Unfortunately, though, with 21st century weapons and communications, so, uh, but of course the 21st century communications is also how we're talking. So it'll be interesting to see who wins the race, so to speak. Now, could somebody tell me who's uh, typing, just so I can mute that?
Uh, Charlie, can you just tell me what your uh, what your name is? I don't see it. Uh, is it, it C.W. Kirchner? Okay, let me just mute that. Uh, there we go, a little bit better. Okay, well, that was the, maist, uh, the, uh, the main thing that uh, was going on in sort of my mind this week. Uh, of course, we've been having some very exciting discussions on the Free Domain Radio Board uh, for, uh, on both the issues of property rights and free will versus determinism, which have been quite fascinating. And uh, I have uh, had some interesting uh, goes back and forth with the people on that. But uh, I'm going to um, uh, leave it open now so people can talk about whatever's on their mind. It's not as if I don't get enough time to talk during the week. So uh, over to you all. Well, hell, I'll speak up on free will and determinism. Uh, go for it. Okay. Uh, to me, th those are very much like the arguments that were going on in physics just before the turn of the 20th century about, about whether light was a particle or a wave. And there were some friendships broken and heated arguments and accusations of all sorts of things going on back and forth because people felt the need uh, to have one explanation that encompassed everything and that therefore either I mean what light had to be either a wave or a particle and um, and I think it's not that different with this concept of freedom and determinism they're both true they're just looking at it from different perspectives when I'm faced with the decision uh, free will dominates but after I've made the decision it's easy to explain how that came about and, and neither one of those uh, theories or ways of thinking are the way it is. They're just uh, different ways of thinking about a phenomenon that, uh, that shed light on different aspects of it. That's all. Interesting. Interesting. So it's sort of like I get to throw myself. I can choose whether to throw myself off a cliff, but after I throw myself off a cliff, I can't choose whether I fall or not. <laughs> well, um, I, I won't I don't even go there. I don't, I don't know. But I just think that freedom and determinism are uh, are abstract. They're, reific they're reifications of the same kind you were talking about, you know, democracy, freedom, boundaries, borders. None of those things exist. There's no such thing as freedom. There's no such thing as determinism. Those are abstract concepts that at best refer to relationships between things, not things them in their own right. Very interesting, very interesting. Now, does uh, somebody else want to add to that or bring up uh, another topic? Well, uh, just to go back to the, um, the discussion about your article, I, I think uh, one of the things that scares people away from articles like that is that they confuse their own, in their minds they confuse their their attachment to fantasies like uh, Christianity, um, Islam, uh, Judaism, with themselves. They, they see no distinction between the belief in those things and their own conscious self. And so when you suggest in an article, stop believing in these things, you know, when you suggest the destruction of the fantasy, you're suggesting the destruction of the self in their minds, and so, it, and so it becomes a, a sort of um, a self-defense reaction to reject the article out of hand. I think. I think Excuse me. Who who said that? Who was that? Uh, that was Greg. Tech Radio 2? 
no, no GM. Uh, GM Garvey. Oh, okay, thank you. Well, I think I think that's very interesting, and I, I think that there's, as we've talked about in the podcast, a sort of false tra- some false self and, and uh, true self dichotomy. The false self believes that fantasy is the only survivable mode of existence in a corrupt social environment, and so the fa- but then the false self forgets that it's corruption and just thinks it's adhering to the good rather than just conforming to irrational authority. And so when you say that these things don't exist, you are directly challenging the supremacy of the false self over the personality. And from the false self's perspective, that is the same as self-destruction. It's just that when you peel off that scar tissue, there's usually quite a vibrant and intelligent and curious human being underneath. And people don't really want to, uh, to go through that process because they're, sort of, they're so dominated by the false self that it does feel like personal destruction. But I think the interesting thing is also that nobody supplied any counter-arguments. They just said, well, people will be upset, basically, or we'll lose listenership or we'll lose readership or whatever. And some didn't even provide any explanation at all. It was very curt. And I think another thing that people uh, feel is that if, like, let's just say I'm, you know, publish, I'm some libertarian um, uh, website and I'm sort of say that I'm really into freedom and this, that, and the other. And then I say, okay, well, if I publish this article or some other article like it, I'm going to offend and alienate a lot of my readers. Now, am I going to do that because the argument is offensive and irrational? Well, no, the argument is not. Uh, well, offensive, yes. Irrational, no. But I think what happens then is they're sort of coming closer. They're coming a little bit closer to the problem that's right at the core of this kind of communication, which is that if I can't publish something that is true because I will drive away my readers, then my readers are not coming to me for the truth. The readers are not coming to me for the truth. The readers are coming to me to confirm their pre-existing beliefs. And that's a very, very great difference from coming to someone for the truth. But I think within their own minds, the people who run these websites and so on, they're feeling or they believe that they're in it for the truth. The same way that people say, oh, yeah, my family's great, we love each other, but you can never be yourself around them, right? Because when you actually start to deal with these issues, then you realize that you're not as free as you claim to be. And that, I think, is a great deal of threat towards somebody's life work. Like if I say, well, I'm all about the freedom, and then I say, well, I can't publish this article even though it's true and useful because uh, I don't want to alienate my readers, then obviously the relationship that I have with my readers or my listeners is not one in which the pursuit of truth is paramount. It is one wherein I am feeding up something which serves their own prejudices and doesn't challenge them in ways that are startling to them, which means that it's kind of like not exactly a pointless exercise, but it's not exactly a truth-centric exercise. And the interesting thing, to say sort of finally too, is that for most of the people that I'm writing to to say, hey, you might want to publish this article, if they, um, uh, if they bring libertarian ideas up outside their own circle, they often feel a, a face a great deal of hostility or indifference and they probably dislike that, but now, of course, they're pursuing the same thing against other ideas, uh, which I think is a real shame. And, of course, if you said to them, do you think that uh, what Socrates was doing was very important, they'd say, yes, it's very important to question premises and bring forward new ideas, but when it actually puts them in the hot seat and they have to do it themselves, uh, vastly more people fold than don't fold. And my issue isn't even with the fact that they're folding. 
I mean, I don't mind that they don't want to publish this article. What bothers me is that they're still probably going to convince themselves that they're in a truth relationship with their listeners or readers and that they're very interested in freedom and honesty. And so it's it's not saying, well, you know, I guess I'm not as free as I – because I'm too scared to publish this article or I don't want to alienate my listeners, so I'm not as free or have, have an honest, as honest a relationship as I thought I did. But, of course, there's nothing. Nobody's written to me and said, you know, this is true, but I'm going to have to back down from publishing it because um, – I'm just going to alienate stuff, and I guess I need to look at my own premises about what it is that I'm doing in the realm of communication. Nobody's been that honest. They've just basically said uh, it's offensive or I just don't want to publish it. Right. It's like, it's like the experience with a, with a corrupt family. You know, you, you, everybody sits around and pretends they like each other, and what they really like is the fantasy that they have in their heads of what each other is like. Right. Right. No, I think I think that's very true. And it's interesting too. We had to, we've had somebody who's joined the board recently. I can't remember their their login name, but I will hand out their um, their uh, social insurance number. Um, but and this person was something like, and we see this quite a bit on the Free Domain Radio board when new people join, and there are discussions about the family that's going on. And sort of people come on, sort of guns are blazing, and they say, "You guys are just anti-family." Uh, and you, you think all families are evil. Well, it's not the case, because my family was really good and really nice, and we have a great time, and blah, blah, blah. And that, to me, is very interesting, because it would strike me that if somebody did have a really good family that, that taught them the truth and taught them integrity and taught them honesty and taught them compassion and all the good things in life, then it would be likely, at least in my opinion, that they would have sympathy towards people who didn't have such a great experience. Like if you had the most wonderful uh, family in the world, I think that's great. I certainly believe that that's possible. Otherwise, I wouldn't be fighting for it. Like I, if I was absolutely anti-family, I thought that all families were evil and there was no capacity of that disparity in power producing a good relationship between parent and child, then I wouldn't fight it. I don't spend a whole lot of time fighting gravity either. But, uh, of course, it's because I do have a vision of a better family structure, a better family situation. But when people come in guns blazing and say, oh, you guys are just anti-family, you hate all families, and my family was great, my sort of response is, and I haven't heard anything back from this gentleman, would be something like, well, then shouldn't you have compassion for people who didn't have such a great family life? Wouldn't that sort of make sense? Um, and if your family was so great, then they would have taught you that lots of families aren't great and you should have compassion for them. And if we were making that kind of mistake of blanketing statement, the blanketing statement that says all families are evil, then surely you should have compassion and kindness and help us out of our error rather than just charge in guns blazing and say that we're completely irrational and think that all families are evil. So it's that kind of sensitivity. People think that they're, like when you become wise in this sort of area, uh, people think that they're coming on uh, you know, really strong and making a really strong point, but boy, does it ever just reveal so much about themselves that they don't probably want other people to see. It's almost embarrassing to watch. I mean, I do understand sort of where it comes from, but uh, people don't uh, have that. It's the same thing that I posted today on the determinist board, which is that uh, people are getting all mad at me for my position against uh, pure determinism, or at least my agnosticism regarding determinism and free will. And they say, well, we should have, you know, one of the aspects of determinism is that we have compassion for people because we know that you know, where they are in life is not their fault, but it's simply causal. And yet every single determinist I've ever debated with gets really angry with me. <laughs> so it's sort of hard to understand where all that stuff comes from. And to me, it just reveals the entire family history rather than any kind of intellectual debate. So did you manage to get anyone to uh, consider it? 
Uh, to consider what? The article. Uh, no, nobody or has uh, nobody has agreed to publish it yet. Uh, I've had uh, I don't know probably six to eight submissions uh, of, of of outlets that I would regularly uh, even antiwar.com, which is a great site and have published uh, published uh, uh, the state is the health of war, which was an article that I wrote a couple of months ago. Uh, they have uh, and they very much came back with well yes, but we would we would offend people. And uh, that, to me, is it's just it's just very interesting. I mean, if if you're going to want to become a philosopher and to talk about ideas, I think one of the things you kind of have to give up is offending people, right? It's like saying, well, I want to be a doctor, but I'm not going to tell anyone to change their lifestyle if they're overweight or heavy smokers or you know I don't know IV drug users or people who like to parachute without a parachute. Uh, like I'm not going to say anything to anyone that they should ever change their lifestyle because I don't want to offend anyone. Well, then you're not really a doctor, right? <laughs> I mean, that's sort of a basic thing. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, there's, there has been uh, no uh, no acceptance of the article in in any sort of my regular outlets. And uh, sorry, go ahead. It's like the difference between a sophist and a and, and a philosopher. You know, everything's equal, but you know, here's your menu of choices. And, you know, whichever one you like is the one you uh, cling to. You're not really interested in truth, then. you're just interested in a uh, psychologically comfortable uh, position. Um, and I have no problem with that. Again, I'm not one to say to people you have to publish this article. It's just that people should be honest about their reasons for not publishing it. Um, that and, and they're the, into freedom, but they don't want to alienate their listeners. Well, they're irrational listeners. It's like, but then you're not into freedom. You're not into rationality. If you're afraid of offending irrational people, then you're not into rationality. Right, right. And their 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 uh, unwillingness to to be honest in that sense uh, is is an implicit admission that they're they're really not interested in freedom or truth. They're just interested in you know kind of what makes them feel good. Now, I have had a, uh, a question here, which is going to be something on the fly. It says here, Stefan, I have too much background noise, kids, to open the mic, but could you expound on your concept of determinism as a psychological defense mechanism? Sweetie, would you like to take that one? <laughs> um, now, I don't have a particularly strong theory on this, and uh, given that I've just talked about uh, the need to sort of drive on to a rational conclusion, at least as far as I see fit, to pursue it, regardless of its offense to people, I would say that determinism is, uh, you know, and I'm talking about hardcore determinism, like everything that we say and do is foreordained from the Big Bang onwards, that there's nothing that is voluntarily chosen, everything is causal based on what came before, and the brains that we have are simply arrangements of atoms that are, have been influenced by every prior atom and every piece of energy in the universe so that we don't have a choice. So I'm talking about that sort of uh, hardcore uh, stuff. I mean, obviously it's, it's a complete uh, rejection of uh, ethics and of uh, personal responsibility because, of course, if you, if you have no more free will than a rock does, then uh, to get angry at anybody's opinion is sort of like getting angry at somebody who's got epilepsy for having an epileptic attack, right? You, you don't get angry at that because it's not under their control. Like, uh, you know, if Christina, if Christina and I have a disagreement, uh, I can get angry at her if she pops me on in the jaw while we're awake. But if she then pretends to be asleep, as happened last night, no. If, she, if, uh, uh, if, if she's asleep, rolls over and hits me in the face, I can't get mad at her for it. I mean, I can sort of say, ow, but I can't sort of say, you know, that was, I'm calling the cops because you're hitting me, and so on. So, 
in the hardcore determinist world, there is the basic idea that uh, ethics and personal responsibility are mere illusions, sort of mere fantasies. And sort of try, and I'm really, really, this is very early in this, uh, this development of this idea, so I apologize for its sketchiness. But basically, my question is, uh, with people who have ideas that seem to be uh, counter, uh, counterintuitive or counter-experiential, and to some degree, I would say counter-logical, which is the basic idea of a hardcore determinist trying to change somebody else's mind. It just seems kind of contradictory. And certainly the emotional content of the debates on the board, where people get really angry at me, who, who, who then say that my opinions, uh, I'm not at all responsible for my opinions, but other people get really angry at me, that's something not quite working in the theory, right, from that standpoint. Because in order to change someone's mind, you have to feel that they're in error and can be corrected, right? But of course, in, determinism, in the hardcore determinism, that doesn't make any sense, right? But I would sort of say, when these things occur, my general approach is to say something like this. Okay, well... What motive could somebody have for wanting to get rid of all personal responsibility and the idea of good and evil and so on? And I think that generally, if I try and sort of touch back on the family history that might produce something like this, a lot of philosophy is a sort of what I would call pseudo-philosophy is around excusing the parents, right? So uh, people who are statists are saying that, yes, a, a vast degree, a differential in power and uh, a monopoly of authority in the form of the state is a morally good thing and makes you free. And these, I would say, are people who had uh, some sort of uh, abusive kind of authority over themselves as children, probably parents, but it could be teachers and so on. And they're then saying, in order to avoid the problem of coming right up against the uh, corruption of, that they experienced from authority when they were children and having to deal with that emotional stuff, they then end up having to justify authority in a wider sense and they become statists. And so I would say that people who become determinists have probably experienced a lot of verbal uh, emotional manipulation, right? Mm -hmm. Not physical abuse, because people who are into physical abuse or who've been strongly physically abused will often end up, you know, as cops or in the army or criminals or uh, they will end up being sort of more physically abusive, uh, either within a, a sort of marital relationship or towards their own children. And that's not absolute, right? I mean, the majority of people who are physically abused do not themselves become abusers. But if there is a trend, it would be in that direction. But the people who've been emotionally or uh, abused in a way that, you know, their ideas were put down, that they were never uh, given sort of rational consideration for their own personalities, never and they sort of controlled or teased or, you know, in a very sort of subtle manner, I would say that they're going to have a problem with personal responsibility because they then are going to have a very difficult fight on their hands with their parents saying, uh, well, you kind of did wrong by me. And the parents are like, hey, we never laid a finger on you. We gave you everything you wanted. We took you on vacations. We took you to the beach. We bought you bicycles. We did whatever, right? And they're going to have a very tough time narrowing down or trying to figure out what went wrong in their childhoods. And so one of the ways that they're going to try and cover up this kind of parental abuse is to say there's no such thing as choice, there's no such thing as responsibility, because, of course, that gets them right off the hook as far as dealing with their own situation goes, because they don't ever have to confront anyone, because everything that everyone does is without uh, a choice, without sort of voluntary uh, responsibility, and so they then, it's just another way for me of avoiding that kind of confrontation with the family that a lot of sort of thinking seems to be involved in. That, that's the end of the rant, so feel free to, to let me know what you think. Okay, I'll take a chance on this mic. Can you hear me? You, you bet. Um, where do you keep getting anger from? I'm sorry? You, you've referenced several times that, that the determinist side is getting angry with you. I'm just wondering where you get that. I've gone back over my post and tried to find what could be interpreted as angry. 
Oh, sure. Well, I mean, people will say, you know, Steph, uh, you know, you've admitted to your emotional problems, you're obsessed with this topic, you don't understand the, the logic, you're being irrational, you, you know, there's, there's lots of sort of, denig uh, uh, I guess, what's denigratory, uh, denigrating? Derogatory? Derogatory, thank you. I hope that was a voice outside of my head, because that's, where, that's exactly the same accent that the podcasts originally come through in, which I'm just transcribing, so, so good for you. Um, but yeah, there's just lo uh, I would sort of expect because there was a post sort of recently about determinism where people said, you know, we will we will forgive uh, or we will be kind towards uh, you know people who beat their children or who abuse their children, and okay. I don't get any of that sense of compassion as far as it goes in the determinist debates that I've either had sort of on these shows or or on the boards or through emails. People well, just seem to get sort of irritated with my position. Well, I mean, people disagree with you and, and are and continue to to challenge things that don't that don't you know that we disagree with. I I don't know. I mean, I I guess to me, anger is a tone and anger is a is an emotion that. I mean, I I guess it'd be great if you could go back and, and point to some specific. Okay, items. well, I mean, I, I certainly, a, if you could just keep talking for a minute or two, I will see if I can dig something up that uh, sort sure. of fits that, because I don't want to also sound unjust. That, And also, you know, the problem is that then I don't want to sound like, well, somebody disagreed with me, therefore they had a bad childhood. I guess that's, that wouldn't be a very radical right. approach to and, the problem, and, right? And again, as I described today, I mean, there's nothing about um, about some anger that would, that would, you know, anger is a natural, is a natural response to, um, a frustration, anyway, I'd say is probably a better word, and that's a natural response to having a goal and, and not being able to accomplish that goal. I mean, that's, there's nothing that violates determinism about somebody getting frustrated if they're not being successful with something. That's just a matter of, uh, you know, I think you're, you're sort of personifying it a, a bit too much. If I'm, if I'm frustrated because, you know, it, determinism tells me, if nothing else, that I'm not doing a very good job of of uh, convincing you, and that is frustrating. You know, just like I said in the, the post, I get frustrated when a mosquito bites me. I know that mosquito is just acting deterministically, but uh, you know that frustration. If you analyze it for a minute, comes down to boy, it was stupid for me to be out here where where the mosquitoes can bite me without some mosquito spray on or, or whatever. You know. But the point is, I mean, I certainly I've not been getting heated. I mean, I've I've been I've been fig trying to figure out the right way to approach these things. And I have the thing. The only thing that I can say has actually frustrated me is, is in the podcast when you when you've made a couple of claims that I think we've sort of shot down well enough that they shouldn't be coming back up. About, you know, it doesn't really matter one way or the other being the one, and the other one being that that we are somehow inconsistent in engaging in a debate if we're determinists. Like, like determinism should mean that you should crawl in a corner and and not do anything. That, I mean, it just makes. It's a contradiction that on, that's only a contradiction if you want to, you know, view it from a from a free will perspective. Oh sure, no, I understand that. I do. I certainly do understand that. Um, and that's sort of one of the reasons why uh, I have uh, uh, I've sort of tried to to deal with this. Like, I want to sort of understand in general what what the difference is in between between determinism and free will, uh, in terms of how you act, right, rather than just sort of a, a mental uh, a mental spot. And so one of the things that was not asked by me but was asked by other people is that if we do, um, uh, if you are somebody who believes in determinism, then you're going to have uh, much less frustration because you're going to recognize that everything's kind of inevitable. And I would sort of see that a little bit more if I felt that it was sort of emotionally part of the debates. Uh, but uh, sort of, and that's sort of my instinct, right? I don't sort of have any proof. I'm just sort of running through a couple of things here, um, wherein uh, just sort of trying to dig up some stuff here. 
but uh, let me just have a look here. So here. Um, okay, so let's see here. Uh, I said uh, something where I said, uh, whether I participate or not in a debate and the outcome of a discussion and my opinion at the end of her talk, all of that is also predetermined, right? And then somebody wrote back and said, barring any true randomness that might come into play, you know that old discussion, yes. But as I've noted before, you seem preoccupied with what determinism means about the future. Since we don't know the future, I don't see much point in worrying about that. I'm far more interested in what determinism has to say about the events of the past and our actions in the present. That's where it really matters. And the emotional tone of that, uh, at least to me, this is sort of my perception of it, and I think that it's, it's fairly objective. So if somebody says about a debate that you have a problem because you're preoccupied with something that's irrelevant, but I'm interested in what is relevant, well, that very much is not, I mean, that's kind of condescending, right? I mean, it's the same to someone, uh, someone saying to me, well, you're, you're preoccupied or obsessed or like, people would say that that's a negative phrase and sure. that uh, being interested in what really matters is a good thing and being preoccupied with something that's irrelevant is a bad thing, right? So, right. I mean, it's those kinds of approaches and, and I'm sort of uh, trying to figure out, uh, see if I can dig anyone other ones up. But uh, it's those kinds of approaches that seem, they seem to be a little bit so more sort of like manipulative than, uh, than it, it's like the appearance well, of something rather than the actual argument, if that makes any sense. It kind of, yeah. And, and I, it's funny because I, that's my post. And I, you know, lots of I, I tend to go over these posts several times to try to ferret out anything that might even be interpreted that way. And in this case, you know, I think, I, I think what you're saying there's a, a little weak. I mean, I've, I, I do consider it a preoccupation with it, with what determinism says about the future, because that seems to be where everybody goes with determinism immediately. Is well, wait a second, then the future's all you know settled, and and that means we don't have power, and, you know, whatever. And and to me, that's I, I've said several times, that's a gee whiz thing, but it's nothing. There's nothing practical we can do with that. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> I guess I don't I don't see any point in in talking about what it has to do with the future. It just you know it doesn't get us anything. So. Uh, yeah. So, so I, I mean, I believe what I said. I do think you're preoccupied with that. I don't mean that in any negative way. I mean to point that out as my, as my honest belief in, 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 you know. I mean, I would have to say that's a far cry from, from saying that somebody's position is a, is a psychological defect and a defense mechanism, which is what you said about my point of view. But, um, you know, but again, I don't take that, that too personally. But this is. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, you read that post in a, in a tone that, that made it come across a little negative, and I certainly didn't mean it that way. Um, I, I, I think it is more. I don't, I don't have any problem with people who who take that approach to to a debate, but uh, it's just that uh, it seems to me, and again, this this could be my preoccupation, right? But it would certainly seem to me that since determinism is saying that what occurs in the future is uh, caused sort of directly and inevitably by what occurred in the past, that the future is where determinism sort of has stakes its claim to, to validity. Because if I say, well, I know exactly what's happening in the present, but no capacity to determine what happens in the future, I would certainly not be a determinist, right? I mean, because determinism is mm -hmm. to say that, uh, the, that the future is where, it's where the null hypothesis would lie. Like, I can't sort of say, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of sitting in, in my porch looking at someone across the street, mm -hmm. and I'm saying, I have this theory about how they're going to behave. And I'm sort yeah. of relating mm -hmm. it to you and saying, oh, they're going to cut their lawn now, and now they're going to water their lawn, and now they're going to tie their shoe, and yet yeah. I can't predict what happens next. That would not really be much of a theory. It would just be an observation, right? But no, that, it seems that, to me that – sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just saying what, what you're saying is, is a completely understandable train of thinking. It's just 
everyone's acknowledged up, down, backwards, and forward that nobody has the capability to unravel the complexity of, of, of the human mind and all the complex inputs and processes therein and thereby drive the future. So, you know, it would be, it, I don't know if it would be great if we could, but it doesn't even matter. We can't. That's, that's you know, it's, it's <laughs> sure, a null hypothesis would lie there, but, you know, it's just inaccessible to us. So, so what's the point of talking about it? Whereas there are some extremely applicable and important aspects of determinism to, to, um, to events of the present and events of the past. And so, you know, I don't, I don't see why our, our inability to predict the future should cause us to throw the whole thing out. That just seems strange. I just want to know who's talking with Stefan right now. This is Paul. Your username on the screen, Prism Paul? Yes. Okay, thank you. And uh, I, I certainly do understand where you're coming from. I don't, I mean, my, my position on agnosticism versus free will is, is as you know, sorry, on uh, determinism versus free will is agnostic, that I don't have an answer, that it feels like I experience free will on a continual basis, but of course I don't have any proof for it, just as the determinists don't have any proof. There's indications on both mm. sides, and so my position is sort of more agnostic, but That's progress from 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 say uh, podcast number thirty-seven or wherever, where you where you basically just made fun of it. <laughs> okay. No, I certainly I correct. Certainly, I mean, I'm just wondering. No, it is your, your uh, position's changed a bit on that. Well, yeah. I mean, the very first podcast, uh, I simply just said free will exists, and I got uh, fairly heavily blasted for that. And I think that yeah. that was perfectly correct, right? Because uh, making a statement about that sort of base physiology and understanding of the mind and physics and all that was simply. Uh, an unthought-out position based on my own sort of experiential perception of my own but, existence and the choices that I make. Wouldn't you so agree that with me was, that, yeah, that, that was incorrect for sure? Wouldn't you agree with me that an awful lot of what you have to say about morality is based on the idea that wouldn't determinism put if if the determinism was true, wouldn't that cause a lot of problems for for a lot of things that you that you feel about the family, about morality, about a lot of these issues you spend a lot of time talking about? Oh, absolutely. It would it would completely change. So if you're agnostic, how can you take all those other things with such certainty? Uh, well, because when you are uh, when when you don't know the answer to something, but you have to act, right? I mean, I experience free will. I can't prove free will, right? At least I I believe that I experience free will based on sort of the choices that I make and and the knowledge and the understanding. I can't prove it, right? But but I believe that I experience it. And uh, so if I uh, have to act, and everybody has to act, and you have to have a methodology by which you act, then the sort of experience that I have of uh, believe, experiencing what I believe to be free will, if that, uh, th that is sort of the basis for, for what it is that I'm doing and the, the sort of moral philosophy that we're, we're talking about in general in this conversation. And if it does turn out that somebody comes up with a proof for determinism and uh, it says that uh, or can prove to me the, you know, what it is that I'm going to do tomorrow and so on, then that would be – I would be completely incorrect. I would absolutely be totally, totally incorrect, and nobody would listen to these podcasts other than as an interesting example of a fundamental error. But given that I feel that I experience free will, and given that I see lots of evidence that human beings perceive in free will and, and act on the case of free will, as I've mentioned before, advertising is sort of one of those where you try mm -hmm. and uh, convince people to change their minds. Debating is another one where I'm trying to convince well, I'll certainly to stipulate their minds. That, I'll certainly stipulate that, I, that, that the vast majority of people believe that, believe that we have free will. There's no problem with that. Right. And if there was no such thing as free will, then people would do uh, – like they would stop – 
uh, funding advert like they would stop funding advertisements for instance and and if there's yeah. no such thing as free will well, then just the vast majority of people believed in all kinds of superstitions in the past i mean that's not that you know that's not a no of know, course not, not absolutely not yeah. i mean the majority of people disagree with us that doesn't hey, mean they're let wrong let me just let me just real quick i apologize but do you not so you so you do not agree that the uh the, the significant amount of evidence you, you really think the 50-50 kind of thing? I mean, because basically the, your position is that there's something in the human brain that's different than anything else that we know of physically or in nature. In other words, everything else we know in nature, we can we can trace the cause and effect. We can see how it behaves. You know, the outcomes are traced to the inputs. And 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 you think the you really think it's just as likely that there's something in the brain that makes it different, as opposed to the alternative, which is just that that we you know we sort of like to think that. Right. Yeah. And and yeah. Big, yeah. Based on sort of two things, and I, I'm not going to say it's only these two things, but these are the two main things. The one is that uh, we don't know obviously everything about physics and the mind and consciousness and so on. No, of course not. And so uh, to to draw final conclusions in these areas seems to me premature, right? And uh, so that's sort of the one thing. The, the second thing is that when you deal with a very unusual substance then, uh, that, that appears to violate the laws of pure causality, right? I mean, consciousness does things, as I mentioned before, that uh, nothing else in the universe can do. And so it would seem to me that it's possible that you can have self-referential and uh, choice-based uh, whatever the con whatever consciousness produces uh, is, is possible for it to be choice-based because that's certainly how uh, how I experience my life, right? So the first thing yeah. that I have to work with is sort of myself as a lab, and that's sort of been my experience is to make choices and, and uh, weigh, weigh consequences and figure out where my long-term and short-term objectives are and what I'm going to focus on doing. Right, so and you understand sort of that what that determinism doesn't 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 disagree that those. That those that that weighing of consequences and that the decision making occurs, it just says that it's a deterministic process that your brain is following. It's illusory, right? Like I'm thinking. No, no, that no. I'm it, it's real. It's it's real. It's just a, a process your brain is following deterministically. It's a deterministic process. In other words, the brain does absorb information, weigh alternatives, and make decisions. Absolutely. The question is whether that's a 100% deterministic process. Just like I could write a computer program that would look at a whole bunch of variables and make a quote-unquote decision. You know, it, 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 there, is, there is weighing going on. There is decision-making going on. The question is, is it purely deterministic, or do we somehow get to override uh, cause and effect and, and make it go directions you know, it, it wasn't naturally going to go? In right, other no. words, it, it really comes down to are we really complicated robots? And, yeah, and, no, I, and determinism I do understand says we that. are. Yeah. yeah, I do understand that. And, of course, <laughs> asking for pu pure prediction is like asking how many raindrops are going to fall tomorrow, which exactly, you know, can't right. be done. There's too many variables. Right. No, I fully understand that. But if I am weighing uh, decisions and uh, determinism is true, then it is an illusory process that I'm undergoing, right? Because the, the, the decision that I'm going to make is, is foreordained by the factors and the processes that came before, right? Yeah, yes. Right, so so weighing decisions is. Uh, no, that's, that's not true. Was well, it's a con well, Hold on there, Niels. It's it's a it's a it's a combination of the of the, the current state of your brain and whatever inputs are coming in. Absolutely. Right, but whatever inputs are coming in are themselves predetermined by other people's actions or natural sort of reality, right? 
Yeah, natural effects in the world, sure, whatever. Yeah, but so so yeah. The, 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 the process of making a choice or encouraging other people to make a choice or this or that is mm-hmm. sort of a, like it would be much more efficient uh, to, to not do that because the outcome is sort of, uh, is, is foreordained. And you may, you may want to go through that process like just for the heck of it, but no, thinking but that, that you're weighing the, and making choices no, what, is illusory. What, Yes, thinking that you're weighing, your brain is weighing and making choices. I mean, and 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 um, I think you're dancing around that same problem again of, of of that that our participation is irrelevant or 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 you know because the results are already because it's not under our control. In other words, a, a bunch of robots can go in a room and interact with each other, and and every robot is going to have an outcome on what what happens in the end. You know, that's that, and that's basically what we all are. That's, now, that's, and you you feel this is a, a a proven proposition? Like there's no doubt in your mind? No, 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 absolutely not. But it's very similar to atheism. It's just the it's just the overwhelming it's just the overwhelming um, um, reasonable explanation for for what for what we are and what goes on from a couple of lines of evidence. One being neuroscience. The other one being just the fact that you can see us. At, I mean, if you, if you understand evolution and understand how we're sort of this pinnacle in terms of at least at least a brain. Um, of a whole range of, of lower lower capacity brains all the way down to the simplest, um, you know you can you can see the path. It, it's it's to me odd to, to 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 just suggest that somewhere along that path of complexity, something completely contrary to everything else jumps into place. You know, I mean it's you know what I'm saying. Sure. No, I understand that. And of <clears> course, <throat> if we were a direct line uh, continuation from everything that came before, then I would certainly understand that, right? Like saying that uh, a, uh, a, a tree is somehow fundamentally different from a plant uh, is, would be sort of not logical because it's just, right. a, bigger plant, right? it's just a bigger plant. Exactly. But so to say our brain is special from a chimp's brain or a chimp's brain is special from a pig's brain or a pig's brain to a dog brain and just keep working your way back, to me, they're, they're, they're high levels of complexity, obviously, but they're the same in kind. And they're electric, you know, they're, they're organic electrical structures that that work by, you know, neurons firing. And and you know, yeah, we don't know the details, but we certainly can go down to the simpler forms and understand very well how they work. And and they and scientists understand the nature of how how ours work. They don't know every detail of you know every neuron firing, but they but it there's nothing anywhere in the science to indicate that there's something non-causal or something that just doesn't follow cause and effect. Well, yeah, I mean... Much, it's much more logical explanation that, that we are just sort of looking at ourselves, that, that, are, that somewhere in this consciousness we, we kind of give ourselves credit for coming up with these decisions that our brain comes up with. Right, much no, more I, I understand decision. that. So what you're saying is that it's, it's an extension of a prior path and that the human mind is just more... It's orders of degree more complicated, but at the same fact... And, and it's that very complication that would seem to us to indicate that we have free will. But it doesn't. Exactly. I got it. Now, I understand that. Yeah, that's and right. And, and I think the reason people really freak out about that is because, you know, yes, it does throw ethics into question. It does throw morality into question. And I think what compatibilists do is redefine those terms so that they're not a problem anymore. But but there's still, you know, yeah, there's still a problem. I mean, you, you know, yes, it's easy for you to say, you know, you have compassion for a child molester. Well, yeah, in a way. I mean, no, I absolutely have more compassion for for the victims, no question. And but you know, show me a child molester that that hasn't lived an extremely painful and and, and horrible life. I mean, they they have. 
I think they're dangerous. I think they need to be contained. You know, they need to be they need to be stopped. They need to be studied. They need to be understood so that we can do what we can to prevent that kind of behavior in the world. But I, I don't see any reason to get caught up in a concept that of vengeance or, or or saying that that person is evil and needs and needs justice. You know, rain down on them or any, anything like that. That's so. Yeah, there's a huge uh, people are very uncomfortable with the implications of this. And I think oh, it's sure, those implications yeah. that, that throw people off. Otherwise, it makes perfect sense. But, see, this is the kind of language that always gets me confused about determinism, where, as you say, based on the fact that we now understand that determinism is true, we should change our behavior and no longer say, I don't know, like, call these people evil, but instead work to contain the, to contain the danger and so on. So you're suggesting an alternative course of action based on uh, uh, the understanding of a particular idea. And again, this could just be my ignorance of the position, so I'm fully aware of this, but just sort of to be perfectly honest, this is where I get very confused because what we're going to do in terms of the future is predetermined, right? So saying, well, we should pursue this course of action instead of that course of action is saying that we should change our path based on new information. We should, right? We should or shouldn't. But it seems to me that that's sort of like if you throw a piano off a cliff saying, well, it should fall to the left or to the right, but it, there is no should, right? Wouldn't that sort of make sense? It does. But you just have to, I understand absolutely that that's something... To, to struggle with. There's a lot of kids in the background. But the, um, Can you hold on just one sec? Let me mute everyone yeah. except you because I think it's just you and I uh, in this particular chat. So really hold on quick. just one second. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Very quickly, the, um, you know, you, you just back that up to, you know, when I say you should, uh, you know, I'm talking to you because I want you to change your mind and, and I think you should uh, approach things differently as a result. That's all just shorthand for my brain has derived this conclusion and is putting inputs into your brain with the hopes that your brain, go, you know, that, you know, it's it's just, <laughs> I understand it's weird. It's it's a different mindset than people are used to. There's no question about it, you know. That's just like when somebody gives up God and accepts atheism, you know, it's a, it's a process of kind of rearranging their thoughts. They're used to going to bed and praying at night, and every time you go to bed, you know, a month after you've given up, you know, uh, theism, you, you still kind of go, wait, yeah, that's right, I'm, there's no reason to pray, there's no, you know, you have to adjust, you have to get used to thinking a different way, because it is different, but there's nothing inconsistent about it at all. Well, and, and you, you could well be right, and look, it, I've, I've admitted in podcasts, I mean, an enormous amount of what gives me pleasure would be stripped away from me if determinism were true, and that doesn't mean that that has anything to do with whether I should accept it or not, it's just right. sort of my sort of emotional reaction to it. Right, but and I, honestly, that's where I'm confused myself, because I, I don't, it's been nothing but good for me, so... Right. And now, it, it, but would you say that your desire to change my mind, your desire to alter my way of thinking, would you say that that aspect of having a desire to want me to think something different than what I'm thinking is is a rational desire or an irrational desire? Oh, I believe it's rational. I mean, I, I yeah, I hope it is. But uh, it, seem, it seems rational to me. But wanting something different than what is, wouldn't that sort of be irrational? Again, I'm just talking no, purely from ignorance in the determinist position. Not at all. That's recognizing your role as, a, as, a, as an agent in the world that can, that can change things. We well, obviously are. But can, can change things. Yes, but if there is determinism, then you can't change things, right? Whatever is I, going to come is going to come. Not at all. I mean, I, I'm, are you having a different conversation than you would have if I hadn't picked up the, the line here? Well, sure, but I, I then, mean, then I'm, I, then I'm the changing. Thing. Then I'm changing something. But we, we change work. things. We change things by interacting in the world. There's nothing inconsistent about that. 
I'm sorry. And again, I'm just, I'm just, I'm having trouble sort of translating this uh, into, uh, into the like my understanding of the determinist viewpoint. So mm -hmm. you can uh, have conversations that will alter people's thinking and get them to do different things. Definitely, we do all the time. And what that conversation is, and the outcome of it, is that predetermined or not? It, it is. It is. It, it is the unfolding of deterministic processes. There's no doubt about. It. Yes. So we and, can't and change it, it. So it's. We can't. We so can't. So you can't change somebody else's mind because. No, no, no. What, that's what they're different. Going, sorry. Go ahead. That's different. How so? We can change somebody else's mind. We can't change whether or not we were going to change somebody else's mind. If that makes any sense. But it does. It does. If, <laughs> but, but if if uh, if I can't change my mind, then can you change your mind? What do you mean? Can I change my mind? Yes, well, my 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 conclusions can change. If that's what you mean by can I change my mind? Of course, my conclusions have changed many times. Right, but whether they're going to change or not is preordained. I hate the word preordained, but it's it's the result of deterministic processes. Yeah, preordained so, sounds like somebody somebody else. No, I know, it, and I don't mean, mean to say that there's a yeah. cosmic script. Uh, right. Because uh, certainly the script in my life is mostly yeah. written by Christina, so it's a little bit different from what <laughs> most people experience. But and this is where for me the problem becomes fairly acute in that you're using language that I would associate with free will, like you communicate in order to change people's minds to achieve a better outcome and blah, blah, blah. But as far as I understand from the deterministic position, it is very much like two television sets talking to each other insofar as what the conclusion of the conversation is going to be is not uh, uh, is purely determined ahead of time. Yeah, and again, this is where I'm, I, when I say with all due respect, I think you're preoccupied with the future aspects of it. it yes, that is true. But who cares? That's what I say. Who cares? And that's and that's a fantastic position. And look, I really do respect your consistency in this area, right? Because the compatibilists just give me a headache, right? Because it just yeah, seems like too. they want to have their cake <laughs> and eat it too. So I really do respect a your ability, your, yeah, the, your the, intelligence in keeping in the conversation and the well, consistency no, the, of your position. The compatibilists are being consistent too. They've just redefined the term free will to make it work. And I just don't see the point in doing that. It just allows people to talk about free will and, and actually be talking about two different things and, and think they're agreeing with each other. So I mean I, I uh yeah, I don't I don't see the point of that at all. Right. But so when you um when you say that uh, the the determinism says that the future is uh, is is determined ahead of time, but it doesn't matter because we don't know what it is. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to oversimplify mm -hmm. your position, but that's something sort of like it, right? Like the idea that, that we're yeah. we're actors and somebody's whispering the lines into our minds as we go ahead, but we don't know what's next in the script or whatever, right? Sort of. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's. I don't think that was your metaphor, but somebody posted that, and I thought it was quite a striking way of explaining it. But if it's like, well, we don't know what's coming in the future, so we kind of have to act as if there's a choice. And, and I don't. Again, I'm not trying not to oversimplify your position. I'm just sort of trying to break it down into bite-sized chunks for my own brain. So mm -hmm. because we can't focus on the future, because we don't know what's coming, there are far too many variables, we have to act like in a manner that would be compatible with somebody who would believe in free will. Like we engage in debate, we try and change people, we try and improve things, we appeal to right. people's rationality and so on. Yeah, you, you've gone through this. I understand exactly what you're saying. And this is, this is what I would say is this. Pretend it's true for a little while. Pretend. Just, pretend it, just pretend it's true. Just accept it as if it was true as a thought experiment. For a day or two. Position. Determinism, yeah. Sure. The thing that you can't believe is true. Just pretend it is, and then and then you'll see what I mean. I mean, you you still it's like I said, you still get hungry, so you still eat. You know, you still you still form goals and pursue those goals. It's not a it's not it doesn't change. You know, um, yes, and 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 that's sort of because you don't know what's coming. You know, you you have a role to play. You play your role. I mean, you, you know. 
that's not um, there's just not a big problem there. But there, but there is a big difference. You know, you, you, when you say we should act as if there's free will, you know, we act however we're going to act. We, we act however we're going to act. We act according to our nature. You know, right. watch yourself. Watch yourself. You'll act according to your nature. I, I promise you will. I guarantee it. You know, and and but 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 where we don't, we shouldn't act as if free will is true. Is when we look at at, at behavior and morality and those things. We shouldn't we shouldn't pretend it's true because it's not. Well, ethics you know, would be a prejudice, right? Ethics would be a fantasy in that realm. Basically, I mean, you can you can rewrite ethics. You can rewrite ethics based on reduction of harm and things of those natures. But certainly, some things, some concepts, like good and evil and uh, and things like that, you can redefine them as compatibilists do to make something work. But uh, you know, to me, they are fairy tale concepts. We're used to thinking some people are good and some people are evil. No, some actions are good and some actions are evil, in the aspect of how they harm people. And but but there's no reason to to you know to uh, uh, the rational approach to people causing other people harm is preventing preventing it and uh, and trying to understand it better. Well, because you know, it's kind of like the rabid dog thing, right? Like you you put a rabid it, dog in a cage not because exactly it's evil, like but because that. it's sick, right? It's exactly like that. Look at 9/11. I mean, those those guys were following their 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 process. I mean, they were. You know, they, they, their inputs in their life told them that that that, um, uh, that they're on the side of good, right? That they were fighting for, you know, that they were uh, what's the word? When they're going to have a hundred virgins, you know? Oh, they were aiming for paradise. Yeah, exactly. They were they were doing exactly what 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 they were programmed to do. Well, as for those who and and so anyone that says anyone that wants to just get excited about how evil they are and go bomb some other people and well, you and I will agree on this, you know. That, that's uh, but but that's determinism. That's basically saying, you know, were those people evil? No, they were they were misinformed. They were badly programmed. Well, and certainly it would be the case then that those who are responding to bomb Afghanistan are not evil either, right? Because they're just responding no, they're to also they're absolutely, absolutely. And so we can sit, you know, we can sit and call them evil and, and rant and enjoy ourselves, or we can try to think what's the best way to change these behaviors to actually minimize harm in the world. So you would sort of view, and I think I understand this now. You would sort of view those who are focused on the free will side of things, it's like those people in, in movie theaters who, when someone's creeping up on the heroin, they're kind of yelling, like, turn around, turn around. And it's like, dude, the film's already finished. Like, it's already been made. Like, it doesn't make any sense to sort of yell at that. Oh, yeah, basically. I mean, but no, I mean, if you're, you know, if, if, if I'm not watching the movie, then I would tell the woman to turn around because I'd, I'd like her not to get hurt. Right? Right. I and understand I, I try, that. But try to stop it, the guy from hurting her. Right, but it, but yeah, no, I, I think I, I do understand it. It's, it really is a fascinating position. Uh, it is a very difficult thing to use uh, language to describe it because our language is so centered around the assumption of free will. Yeah. Right. I mean, so it is it is almost like you need a new set of language to describe uh, the yeah. world and to interactions because we have, and this could be, you know, from obviously the Christians believe in free will because they bypass causality with the invention of the soul and of God and so on. Although, of yeah. course, they have exactly the same problems in that God knows the future, but you're still responsible for your actions, right? But it is it is yeah. it is a language issue as far as I understand it to some degree as well in that when uh, you talk about influencing the outcome of things, that to me translates into free will, which makes it harder to understand the position. But I certainly think you've made a good uh, a good defense of, of where you're coming from. And Try the thought experiment. Try it. I mean, just accept. You understand the concept. You understand that it could be true. So just pretend it is for a couple of days. 
I certainly you, will, and I will. I will let you know uh, what what happens. It's you should unmute. You should unmute Neil. He's going to disagree with a lot of what I said. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, um, but but listen. Now you know we're not angry, and you know, and and I hope you think you don't think we're as inconsistent as as you seem to think, and and I hope you'd think we're not psychologically, you know, bent on some kind of defensing mechanism or something like that. I mean, I, you know, this is to me. This is rationality. This, that's what led me here. I I didn't have a big problem with my parents or anything like. That. All righty. Okay, so we uh, oh. now somebody who's just joined, I think, uh, is uh, having the exciting, um, uh, the exciting. Uh, uh, you've got your speakers turned on and your microphone turned on, so you're getting loop back. So I've just had to unmute uh, uh, um, uh, people, but um, uh, we can certainly talk a little bit more about free will. I don't want to. Uh, we've now done three or four shows on a number of podcasts, so let me do this. Let me try this thought experiment of uh, pretending that uh, free will is a fantasy and sort of see uh, what happens, and uh, we'll see what uh, – what, uh, I mean, unless nobody else has anything that, uh, that we want to talk about or everybody really wants to continue on the free will topic, I'm certainly happy to talk about it. I just want to make sure that we're not uh, driving everybody to distraction with the free will, free will topic. So I'll just unmute everyone now, and if you'd like to bring up another topic, fantastic. Or if you all say uh, free will or death, uh, then uh, we'll continue on with that. So I'll just unmute everyone now if you'd like to sort of say uh, what's on your mind. Uh, sure, go ahead, Nils. Uh, let me just unmute everyone and then unmute you, so just one sec. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I think you're making a couple of logical mistakes. Only which are That's good. Which are, which are pretty important. Um, you say that it's uh, if people assume that uh, the universe works in a logical, uh, causal way, and uh, the, logic, the, the logical consequence of causality is determinism, if you add time to it, uh, that's basically all that determinism is. You say that it's not rational to talk to other people to try to change their minds, right? Yes. <clears throat> but that's uh, I don't agree with that uh, with that logic. I don't agree with that logic at all. Um, the human mind is not a thing that only uh, outputs things. It's also a thing that uses inputs. That's what a mind is all about. It's a sensory. Uh, it's largely a sensory uh, mechanism. So w when when we talk to people. You try to input them uh, ideas that they will use so that, w that it will change their behavior somehow. It's like uh, an investment. You, uh, you hope to change things for the better. That's, that's why you talk to people. And in, in, in every, uh, the entire process of speaking and interacting is based on causality, not only through the com communication not only through the senses and uh, and the nerves, but also through the in the mind itself, which is a big uh, muscle of uh, neurons. Does it make any sense?
Uh, we are not hearing you right now, Stefan. Some, something might be wrong. I hope I didn't set off an uh, inconsistency in your head that uh, made it explode like a robot. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. So sorry about that. Well, uh, I would say that uh, some people on the board have said that uh, uh, human beings are as predetermined as rocks are. And I don't debate with rocks saying that you should turn into a tree or a unicorn or anything like that. And I don't mean to trivialize your position. This is just sort of where it comes uh, to from, from my standpoint, that if I genuinely believed that debating was not under my volitional control, like so that me debating with you was just something foreordained since the Big Bang and everything that I'm going to say is just foreordained and then your opinion uh, that is your, your, the opinion that you're going to come out with at the end of this debate is foreordained. I wouldn't bother. Like it, to me, it just wouldn't make any sense to do it. Explain the logic. Explain the logic. The logic, sir. Because we don't know what the future is going to bring. It, uh, the, de the deterministic nature of the universe lies in all matter and the way it interacts in all matter. So it's completely unknowable, even theoretically. Well, sure, but I mean, if, if the and choices choices we make are in the now, so th that's a distinction you've got to make. A choice happens in the now, which is a process in time. It's a mechanism, and uh, through time, uh, all these choices uh, result in different things, and and uh, through all these interactions, the 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 the, the future or the past actually is formed. But um, uh, there, there is no deviation from anything because the, the future is a, a big black space of unknowability. The deterministic nature lies in, in the, the characteristic of all matter. So, um, so saying that uh, the outcome is determined, well, yes, it's determined in the entire through the entire universe, but we act in in the now to change uh, the future how we want it to be, and it's not a deviation from anything because there's no standard. Right. So I understand. So you're saying that the future is predetermined, but we have no idea what it is, so we have to act uh, as if it's not. No, uh, there's no acting involved. We know uh, we have information about the now, and we, we have certain wishes and emotions, and that's how we act. Uh, we, uh, it's a straw man to say that we know how the future is, uh, is going to be, and it's set, and that we have to act as though we can change that. But the future is not knowable, so there's no acting involved. And if you say that we uh, determinists should uh, act with humans as they act with ro rocks, that's that's a straw man. Rocks um, have n uh, no capacity of any kind to do anything. You can throw another rock at it. That's about it. But it has no input, no no choice uh, involved in the now, no outputs. 
But the, I mean, this, I understand the input argument, right? So if I kick a rock, it moves, right? And if I say something to someone else that strikes them as true, they might change their thoughts and therefore their behavior and so on. I understand. Okay, that. okay. I c- I'm certainly, I'm, f- I'm in full agreement with the idea of inputs. I mean, heavens, I've got 341 podcasts up there. I'm fully plugged into the idea of trying to provide alternate inputs to people to get them to alter their behavior. I'm totally down with that, and that I have no problem with, and that's based on my supposition that human beings have choice. But uh, the thing that I find sort of problematic is that I don't think that the deterministic position is altered by saying that there are inputs that can be different from what came before because those inputs are also predetermined. Right, so the, you debating with me about determinism, we can't tell how the debate's going to end up because we can't see the future, but it is going to end up the way it's going to end up based on all the inputs that came before, and there's nothing new that we can add to it. And um, what exactly is your point? Well, what I'm saying is that saying that there are inputs doesn't help because those inputs are also predetermined. So it doesn't, it doesn't introduce any variability into the, into the interaction to say that uh, you're trying to put new inputs into people's minds because the inputs are also predetermined. So it doesn't add anything new or variable to the equation as far as I understand it. Yeah, but we, we don't know them as well. Uh, I know you for to a certain extent, so that's uh, why I will talk, talk to you differently like I would talk to someone else. Um, uh, another thing I, I wanted to mention was the thing I posted on the board today about the phantom limbs. Did you see it? Uh, no, I, I know the idea behind phantom limbs, but I didn't read the uh, I didn't read the article yet. Okay, because it's a pretty interesting example to uh, to talk about because you say well, uh, free will is an illusion, and um, that means that it's not real uh, as opposed to something that would be real. But um, things like vision and uh, the consciousness, they are produced by the brain. And the brain can also produce the, for us the feeling that we have a limb, even, even though we, we don't have it. And I think that's a pretty amazing example of the, what the brain is capable of. Sure. Uh, and vision is, is almost the same example, because there's no small cinema in our head that we that our mini-me is looking at. No, it's a complete construction of our 3D vision. And you can call it an illusion, but uh, it is what it is. It's a construction. That's what the, the word I, I'd like to use for that. And, and so consciousness is a construction as well. It's a, it's a product of the brain, uh, which is based on causality. And uh, if you look at uh, an evolution, um, the human brain uh, is not evolved to, uh, it has, has no motive to, uh, to look into the future and change its, uh, itself even though it can be predicted, those kind of things. It has no motive in any kind of shape or form. What it does have a motive is to survive. And how does it do that? It looks at uh, the facts of life and how it can use it for its own benefit and mani- manipulate it. And, and, and that's uh, why we have consciousness to make m- much more complex zi- decisions than, for instance, a snail can make. Um, well, but not decisions, right? It's not a decision yes. that we're making. It is a, a choice is a thing that happens in the now. Choice is a process that happens 
uh, that that you need a couple of things. You need matter and you need time. That's it's a process. That's choice. Uh, so, cho so in your view, choice does exist. Choice is a mechanism. Well, but you see, choice, choice is a free will yes. term, right? I, I don't, uh, I don't know what, what free will has not been defined in any way that I have found useful. But uh, choice is very real to me. It's a, it's a process that you can find in nature, like uh, a plant can have a choice, but it's a very mechanical choice. So uh, suppose a fly falls in this fly trap. Some mechanism sets it off, and it, it falls down, and it can't escape anymore. That's a choice, but it's very, very causal and logical and uh, determined through time. And uh, that's a very simple choice, but you can also have choices in your mind and in your, through your uh, electrons. And a computer can make a choice. A computer can make a choice? Of course. It may, it, it's a big choice-making uh, machine. That's why we built it. Well, I mean, I tell you, just as a guy who's spent a little bit of time with computers, uh, computers don't make choices, at least in the way that human beings are perceived to make choices, right? What goes, I, uh, what, I disagree. What, what goes into a computer is what comes out of it. And you can randomize stuff, but in the arguments around causality, uh, even the randomness of a computer is pseudo-random, right? But as far as I understand it, in the way that we use the word choice in this debate, uh, I don't think that computers or plants would fall into that category. But I certainly do understand that if you feel that human beings are like very complex robots or uh, very complex plants, that you could see an analogy between them. But that's, that's why I sort of say that we need a new set of words almost because choice uh, means very different things to somebody who believes in, in voluntary responsibility and, and uh, the freedom to make decisions and somebody who believes that everything is causal. The word choice means too many different things to both sides, so I think be a useful term. Okay. Well, uh, what I can tell about what I think is a choice for, for instance, a computer is, uh, is a simple... Uh, a simple uh, loop or whatever it says uh, if this then that that's what I call a choice and if you look at a human being who makes a choice then uh, suppose we have a very simple example there's an apple and there's an orange and I, and uh, what I do what how I perceive the human how the human mind works is it looks at its values and it looks uh, at, at the options and the alternatives, and it makes it weighs them. It makes a choice, and it can be uh, not uh, uh, throw it away, eat it, uh, make a choice between either of the two. But uh, I have, I at the end I make a choice for my action, and I act it out. And you, as a free will uh, uh, person, says, well. Um, uh, the choice that I made seems very uh, to diminish my freedom in some way. But what I would say is, well, uh, the choice that I make is actually a pronunciation of my person, of my values, of my history, of my emotions. Everything that, that I want and, and feel and am is pronounced in that action that I make. So uh, th that, that's I see causality as a way of being free, because you can actually act out your person, and I don't see how that it's that's scary at all. 
because if you say, well, suppose uh, your theory is uh, I could have done uh, multiple different things that were not uh, that are were not uh, determined in through time. So this also means that uh, I could have done a number of things that were um, even based on my persona at that moment and my feelings and emotions and observations that there, I could have done different things but that also means that there are certain choices that were uh, less based on me or maybe not based on me at all and I don't understand what me actually means if I can make choices that are independent of me of my human uh, of the status of my human brain no, I fully, I fully understand that. I mean, I fully understand that it's why the term uh, is thrown around on the boards around that free will is, is, is assuming something magical or assuming something sort of outside of physical reality. I fully understand that issue, right? I mean, that, that you could just have a sort of randomness inserted into your particular opinions and, you know, somebody who's studied to be an opera singer for 20 years could suddenly wake up one morning and just say, well, that's it, I'm going to become a mime and never sing again or something like that. I mean, that there would be no... Uh, it would be completely random, right, as far as I understand it. And uh, for sure, uh, there are, uh, as I've talked about in sort of prior podcasts, there are uh, free will is to some degree in my sort of formulation of it. It's something that you sort of earn by, by studying and knowledge and focusing and so on. It's not something, it's like health, right? You, you don't just sort of, you're not born with health and then just maintain health no matter what you do. You have to make specific choices within your life to maintain good health, right? To eat well and exercise and so on. And so it becomes sort of a continuum, and then uh, you have access to health. And if you focus on uh, learning and knowledge and understanding and, and reasoning and curiosity, and you focus on long-term and short-term objectives, and you don't abrogate the responsibility of thinking for yourself and so on, then in my view, you can develop a capacity to make a better, wiser, more humane choices. And those who don't, uh, who just act in sort of the brute reaction to their past and just go on drinking binges and don't ever stop to think about how they might improve themselves, then those people again end up in a very sort of me mechanistic or deterministic kind of way. Somebody who doesn't deal with their defenses in a particular kind of emotional relationship and doesn't make the choice to deal with their history rather than act it out in the present is going to end up just continually reacting to and continually uh, getting angry at. They're, they're going to be sort of, their buttons get pushed and they react. And that to me is a kind of mechanistic way of living. And that is, I think, the majority of human beings, right? I mean, most people who are born in Muslim countries grow up to be uh, Muslims, right? And, you know, they say born a Catholic, uh, always a Catholic, and so on. I think those things can change. And certainly I've experienced in my life that as my knowledge increases and grows, that I have the capacity to make wiser and better decisions. Certainly my relationships are a lot better now than they were when I was in my 20s, and that's the result of, for me, fairly intensive study, self-analysis, uh, therapy, and, and so on. And so for me, uh, it's not that uh, you end up with some sort of a thing that pops in out of nowhere, like health just sort of appears in somebody who's never eaten well or exercised. It's just that in the development of uh, understanding, you can uh, make, make different decisions that are better decisions in terms of longer-term happiness. But that's the result of fairly intensive study, the same way that uh, health uh, in the long run is the result of fairly intensive decisions around eating habits and exercising habits and so on. So I don't okay. think that it sort of pops up randomly out of nowhere. I think it's something that's developed with great care over time. Well, I certainly agree with you. Um, uh, making better choices is 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 extremely hard, and um, 
your mind is uh, a thing that can um, be changed in a lot of different ways. Um, and the interesting about the mind is that we are conscious of ourselves and that we can do things that change our ability to think about ourselves and our decisions. That's really, I think that, that that's really the, 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 the thing where where the discussion gets to be real in certain ways because uh, I still view that as causality, uh, a mechanism that can look at itself and change itself in a in a logical way. Um, does that make any sense to you? Yes, I certainly do. I certainly do understand it to some degree. I'm not saying that I get right to the bottom of it, and I'm not saying that we're going to get right to the bottom of it today. And I just let me just pause for a sec. I mute other people just so that it is uh, something that uh, other people can jump into as they want. Uh, so I've just unmuted everyone. If you'd like to add something to this, uh, just let me know. I just super fast. I just I posted a link to a restless hand, or it's called actually Doctor Strangelove syndrome, which is something I had meant to post as evidence earlier on on the free will thing, and it's it's a very interesting. It's it's an extremely rare thing, but there is brain injuries that lead to a situation where a person's hand. If you're familiar with the the movie Doctor Strangelove, a person's hand actually uh, acts as if it has a mind of its own and acts acts contrary to the 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 will of the of the uh, of the person. So, so they have one hand that they actually have to fight with their other hand that will actually try to, to harm other people, even harm themselves. I think um, Peter Sellers had that, if I remember rightly. Yeah, that, he was the guy, he played it, right. He yeah. played the character. But, but it's a real thing, and the link I showed is, is, is an example. And I think it's just, you know, it's an example of, of, the, uh, uh, of the mechanism of the brain going wrong. And, and there's so many evidences for free will in, or, or for determinism in cases where the brain screws up. You know, where that's where you see, uh, that's where you, that's where you, you can even see people that are that are that have real mental problems just seem more like machines. You know what I mean? You, you sure, can just yeah. you can just see when it's when it's not right. But I just I just wanted to set that context for that thing because it's something definitely to take a look at. It's amazing. Thanks. Will you put that on the board as well? Uh, I'll try to. Yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, now, was there something else that people wanted to add? I don't want to monopolize the debate with uh, with Nils. I had some comments on your uh, Was that you, Greg? I think you've just gone off the air. Yeah, that was me. Okay, let me just mute everyone and unmute you, and then you can go ahead. Okay, uh, okay. I've unmuted yourself and uh, Neil, so go ahead. Uh, should I go or Neil? No, you go ahead. You go ahead, Greg. Okay, yeah, I, I didn't really have anything to say about uh, determinism. I, I thought you were asking for other stuff. Well, go ahead with other stuff, and, uh, because Nielsen and I are still going to have this chant. Uh, uh, we're going to do a one-on-one -on -one and record it, so uh, go ahead with something else. We'll certainly get uh, the, the issues with Neil squared away at some point, or at least we'll certainly get clarification on both sides of the fence. Okay. Uh two questions really um which are just follow-ups from what we were talking about on the board um, one is the the issue around lying and the other one is uh um, 
uh, a problem I kind of had with the the whole idea of the the, the thesis of uh, of um, oh the growth of evil one right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you had some excellent questions about that, and I was hoping that we would uh, get to those today because I didn't want to sort of jump it on you if you weren't ready. But yeah, excellent questions about that, so uh, that probably would be worth having a chat. Just for those who don't, who haven't listened to the podcast, uh, shocking, uh, shocking. Uh, give yourself a quick spanking, then continue. Uh, and if you have a webcam, I'll send you the address. Um, but uh, this is a, a thesis that I'm sort of batting around that um, uh, people who have really bad childhoods uh, tend to act out bad things. And the idea is that the growth of evil always escalates until people recognize that people had bad childhoods and have sympathy for it and, and say that it's unequivocally wrong what they went through. So people like Hitler, sort of, uh, who grew up in a society where child abuse was uh, pretty much the norm, if not, uh, and, and actually approved of, right, beating children and, and so on, which was in Germany throughout the 19th and, uh, uh, and tw early to mid-20th century, that because society doesn't recognize the abused child and the moral horror that they went through, that they continue to act out their childhoods in other people until such time as the horror gets inflicted on enough people that people sort of put the brakes on and uh, decide to, uh, to deal with those sorts of issues. So uh, the Western culture was awash in a kind of relativism until the end of the Second World War when relativism took a blow through the Nuremberg trials and people said that there's a morality over and above what people believe in, in subjective ways. And that was sort of the end result of it, and that that's sort of the point. And that the way that you can try and uh, prevent this kind of escalation of evil is to talk openly about uh, child abuse and the suffering that it causes so that uh, people don't end up ending it out, uh, acting it out in this escalating way. Uh, so, sorry, that's a very brief uh, thing. Boy, it's good to know I can do it. I should probably, probably didn't need three podcasts. But anyway, uh, that's a sort of very brief description of it, and that's just set the context for uh, Greg, if you'd like to go ahead with your question. Uh, sure, and... Uh I guess my problem, I think, really just comes down to the examples you're using, because I think the examples were, were confusing me a lot. Um, uh, and of course, you you went straight for the big ones, you know, uh, Saddam and Hitler, and uh, I mean, the, the um, I, I don't know much about Saddam's childhood or. Well, for that matter, Hitler's either. But, uh, but, but if you look at uh, what they actually did, uh, Saddam particularly, um, it 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 just seemed to me that it didn't square with the notion that it's a, 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 a there, that there's this compulsion toward continuous escalation. That and 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 you sort of uh, you supplied some this self refutation, I guess, in the podcast too on this, with with pointing out how uh, Stalin didn't actually rush into Western Europe; he pulled his troops back, and how how Hitler really wasn't interested in. Um, going after England, he just wanted to beat up on the little guys so that he could prance around and and show how tough he was, and 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 then the same thing with Saddam, how he act, even if he had nukes, would never have thought of you know lighting up Baltimore because he'd wind up dead, you know. So if there is this compulsion toward escalation to the point of self-destruction, 
those three examples alone seem to uh, argue against that. So I, I guess I was kind of looking for better examples. Right. So what you're saying is that in the podcast, I sort of acted a little bit like Paul's other hand, <laughs> sort of debating with myself and winning on the downside. No, the, the key thing, Greg, is what you need to do is keep uh, go back and keep listening to the podcasts until you can't think in any other kind of way. And that will probably be the easiest way to approach that, uh, and certainly a lot easier uh, than me trying to defend my position. Does that make sense? I perfectly understand. <laughs> Excellent. Well, no, I mean, those are perfectly good uh, good objections, and they may, they may well be valid. Um, the thing that I would say about uh, um, uh, Hitler, of course, is that he did end up attacking England, and he did end up uh, um, sort of growing to the point or growing in escalation. And, of course, he attacked Russia, which was the big, you know, like he'd never heard of Napoleon, right? So he attacked Russia and destroyed, uh, the, you know, the one thing that he had the whole pact with Russia for was f to avoid the two-front war, which always nails Germany and certainly did in the First World War. But uh, he, did, he did attack England and then he did attack Russia. So although they say, and they don't, they don't want to sort of do these things internally, that sort of uh, is the way that, that it ends up. And the way that uh, you can sort of see this pattern in Stalin is that Stalin has complete control over his country and then in the 1930s begins this whole system of purging which destroys his army, uh, signs a pact with Hitler who he knows he cannot trust. And then uh, uh, Stalin also refused to believe that the Germans were invading. One of the main reasons that uh, the German troops got so far into Russia was that Stalin simply refused to believe that they were invading. He thought it was just lies spread by people who wanted to get him into a war with Hitler. So there are those kinds of mistakes as well. But when I'm thinking, and you're right to point out that individuals do survive, as Lenin did, to the end of their uh, course of power without self-destroying, but the system as a whole it tends to increase to self-destruction, right? I mean, we can even look at the American or Canadian examples uh, currently, right, where the system is simply expanding in power and control to the point where it is going to end up self-destructing. That there, logically, it would just sort of make sense. Like if I were Joe Evil or something like that, or you know, Joe predetermined to uh, negative behavior uh, for the determinists, then what I would do is sort of I'd grab power of the government and then I would sort of keep it at around 10 or 15 percent of the GDP so that I could live like a king. But it never ends up that way. It always continues to escalate, continues to escalate until there is a real self-destruction. You can see this uh, in Germany in the 20s and the Weimar Republic in the 30s, with Hitler in the 40s, with, with communism, with Paul part with, uh, with Stalin, with Mao, there's always this continual escalation to self-destruction. And if they were simply just interested in grabbing hold of resources and holding on to them, that just didn't make much sense to me. And my explanation might not be, there may be another one, but I think it's something that does need to be explained. With Saddam Hussein, he's got complete control of the country. Uh, there are no credible rival threats. And he goes and destroys his, uh, his army by fighting with Iran for 10 years in the 1980s, and then he starts tweaking the United States, and then he, uh, although he does believe that there is a, a, a Kuwait is, is uh, he's allowed to invade, at least according to certain sources, the U.S. gave permission for that invasion. Uh, when that doesn't work, he retreats, and then he starts tweaking the United States again, and then he starts underselling OPEC. Like, he's already got billions and billions of dollars and is in control of the, com the entire country, but there's always this escalation uh, to self-destruction, uh, if not for the, the individual, for the system as a whole, like for those who come in right after them. Uh, I'm not, I don't know that that clinches the case, but does that at least clarify some of the examples that were admittedly not, not as clear as they should be in the podcast? Yeah, those elaborations do kind of help out. Um, uh, the, it just uh, I just wish there were better examples <laughs> but that does make sense that uh, I, I, 
Hitler did go into England, but... Well, can I just, um, I just interrupt for one second? I mean, if you really do want to pursue this topic, the way that you could help the most is if you go on a rampage yourself, then that would do quite a bit to help contribute towards the discussion here, because then we could interview you afterwards and so on, and you could say, well, Steph told me to do it or something like that. Uh, so, you know, I think it's time to take a bullet for freedom, and if you could just sort of get, get up on that, maybe you could give us a call back next Sunday, if you're allowed to, from wherever you're going to be incarcerated, that would probably help a bit as well. And actually, that kind of gets to my the, to the second half of this particular objection, which was uh, the 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 other side of that equation. Uh, how predictable is it? You know, I mean, because if you take, for example, like like uh, Harris and Klebold out in uh, Columbine, I think it was right. Uh, they it, it's not like they were you know tortured day in and day out the way say, Stalin was or Hitler was, um, and yet it seems that they achieved the level of psychological self-destruction um, much faster and in a much, you know, um, more personal way than, than either of the two, you know, icons of dictatorial power. Right. Um, and, and what, you know, what is it that caused... Stalin to, you know, work his way through the system and and climb the ladder until he could achieve, you know, the, the, the highest seat possible in the country and then start wreaking havoc right. instead of just doing, you know, the Harrison Klebold thing and going bananas and blowing themselves up in a school. No, excellent points. And I would say that um, the, the reason that Stalin was able to achieve what he achieved was that child abuse was much more common in Russia than it is in modern America, right? So these guys, who were obviously, you know, homicidal sociopaths, uh, had bad childhoods. I'm sure we can pretty much be sure of that. I don't know much about the details of their histories. I don't even know if those histories are well known. But uh, those people had to go out in a blaze of glory because they knew that they could not achieve political power in the same way that a homicidal madman like Hitler or Stalin could because there is at least some consciousness in America or in most of the West, which is one of the reasons why our freedoms are slow to erode, there's some consciousness that, say, beating the crap out of children is not a good thing. Whereas in Russia, it was almost de rigueur, right? I mean, in, in Germany as well. The children were seen as sort of evil uh, creatures, naturally selfish and destructive and harmful, and they had to be beaten and tortured and propagandized into submission which is why when somebody comes up and starts screaming at you in Germany in the 1930s, you sort of go, well, yeah, I can sort of believe that that's, a, that's how authority should act because this is how my parents acted, this is how I act, and there's absolutely it's the right thing to do, right? So whereas if somebody starts pulling a Hitler in America, they're not going to associate that with a legitimate kind of authority because that's not how they were parented. But in these other cultures, and this is particularly true in the Muslim culture as well, Children are seen as naturally disobedient and evil, and they need to be beaten and tortured and humiliated and uh, uh, propagandized into a kind of uh, subservience, which is why they end up uh, with uh, this sort of death worship, right? Because life is sort of, in a fundamental sense, not worth living when you're in that kind of society. So, of course, they're going to end up with these crazy, violent people at the top of their culture because that's a direct translation of the parenting that they experienced as children. So I think the difference is that there's a general consciousness of the sensitivity and rights of children in North America that I think, uh, you know, with the exclusion of the, 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 the sort of Christian or collectivist camps, right, because when I sort of first started podcasting, was talking about Christianity as child abuse, I got an enormous amount 
of uh, uh, sort of uh, people who had problems with the idea, let's say. But as this particular streak within American culture continues to grow, then subservience to authority is going to seem uh, very natural. And it's going to be subservience to a kind of benevolent, kind, all-American type of authority where the sort of fascism and the troops are held in the background, right, in the same way that these people experience their parents being sort of fairly genial and nice and occasionally violent but for their own good. And the violence is kept very much in the background of people's consciousness, and that's how it translates into subservience to the kind of state that is growing, right? Whether it's sort of crazy screaming uh, German Nazism or it's uh, crazy screaming uh, communist uh, uh, dictatorships or the sort of more genial, uh, pleasant, uh, but in a subtle way crazy and violent uh, kind of presidencies that are, are growing in, in, the, in the U.S. and, of course, in England as well. So I would say that it is directly related to the kind of parenting that people experienced. And I think if in the Columbine world of these children, uh, if somebody had, or if there was a general consciousness around that world, that what these children had experienced was absolutely horrible and wrong and that they should uh, uh, you know, not have experienced and so on, I don't think they would have had to act out that violence because they would have helped felt heard and validated. And the last thing I'll say before turning it back to you is that you can also look at your own experience here because prior to the conversations that we're involved in here, I think that you did not feel that same kind of validation of your own experiencing experiences. And I think that you've mentioned on the board that you feel more relaxed and at peace with yourself and a little less sort of like an oddball and a guy out in left field because you're in a sort of environment where what you experience and what you're experiencing is thoroughly validated, not just by people giving you the sort of uh, Mormon love bomb group hug, but through a sort of intelligent analysis of the ethics and the interactions that, that you're going through. So in that sense, the peace that you feel relative to when you were not in a conversation with like-minded people, I think is an example in a, in a small way, and not that you were heading to some sort of a, a breakout scenario, let's say, beforehand, but I think some of the peace and ease that you feel relative to what you felt before is precisely because that kind of vi uh, visibility and validation, which I don't think was present in these other countries. That I, I, I think I would agree with that last statement. So, so what you're saying, though, then, is that uh, someone like Harris or Klebold, given enough cunning, could easily have been the next George Bush. No, I don't think so. I think because they were so emotionally scarred in very obvious ways that uh, they could not have sublimated that degree of – I mean, my guess is childhood rape. I mean, I, whenever I see this kind of – and this will be uh, make the determinants happy, of course – but uh, this, uh, this is when I see that level of dysfunction, then I automatically assume uh, extreme physical abuse or childhood rape and no – uh, no, dis no recognition of it within their um, emotional environment, right? So, you know, the, I sort of picture that these kids are sitting around a table and they've been raped by an uncle or a father or something like that, and they want to talk about it, but if they know that if they bring it up, they're going to get attacked and the uncle's going to get off scot-free and they're going to get even more punished, right? So they're in a situation where the abuse that they're experiencing, they can't talk about at all, and so they end up having to act it out. And they're actually angry at the society even more so than they're angry at their uncle or their father who raped them. In my sort of, this is sort of my psychologizing, and it's definitely from the sidelines, but, but just bear with me for a second, right? Because the hatred is not against the people who do us wrong. The hatred is against the people who won't acknowledge that people did us wrong. 
right? So for me, you know, if I had this crazy, violent, evil mom, but my general dissatisfaction was not so much with her, who was sort of crazy and irrational and violent, but with everybody, and this occurs even up to the present, right? Even up to the present, people will say, how's your mom? And I'll say, what, I don't see her. And they'll say, but why? <laughs> right? Even these people who knew my mom when I was a teenager and who knew how sort of crazy and bad she was. Right? So my, my sort of frustration is much more so even with the people who refuse to acknowledge a wrong than those who perpetrate it. And, and that, I think, is why they acted out against society as a whole. Right? So my guess is something like this, and I'll, I'll stop after this little comment. The Columbine kids, they went to school in combat fatigues. They were obsessed with violence. They were uh, dangerous. They swore. People were afraid of them. And nobody ever said, what is going on with you guys at home? Nobody ever said, what is happening? Right? They were just labeled as freaks and misfits and weirdos. Like, like They had this great childhood like everybody else did, but... Unfortunately, they just took some like different path for reasons unknown. They just maybe they listened to one too many rap albums or thrash metal or something like that, and they're just freaks and weirdos. But nobody looked at them and said, "What is going on for you guys?" And this is so common in junior high school and high school or any kind of school that it's barely worth even mentioning because we all know what this is all about, right? That there are the kids who are the freaks who everyone scorns and looks at, and then there are kids from the rich households with the nice cars who you know dyed hair. What I mean, just sort of I'm really overgeneralizing here. But what happened was these kids went to school with definite markers about how crazy they were and how much suffering they were experiencing, and everybody blamed them and refused to read the signs that they were obviously putting out there, right? Like somebody comes to school with like a mohawk and pierced ears and nipple rings and stuff. Somebody really should probably say, hey, what the hell's going on for you that you're self-mutilating in this manner? And... If you don't do that, they're going to be angry at you more so than they're going to be angry at their parents, which is why these kids got guns and went to the school rather than went and shot their parents, right? I mean, that's sort of my, my approach to it. So given that in general these kids were viewed as freaks and weirdos, they weren't going to make it to the top of the political hierarchy, but they had to act out their rage. And to me it's very instructive who they acted out their rage against, and it was their peers who could have actually helped them rather than their parents who they probably viewed as, as unable to change. That's a good point. Um, but, but so what you're saying then is that had they had a, uh, a release valve, if you will, to, that allowed them to sublimate the, the, the rage to some degree, then they would have been able to, say, maybe climb the political ladder. Yes, I would say, well, if you look at George Bush, right? Like, I mean, George Bush is somebody who's got a lot of rage. I mean, deep down, the man's got a lot of rage, right? He's killing hundreds of thousands of people around the world, right? This is not somebody who's full of love and peace and benevolence, right? And he's a bully and a coward, which you can totally see in the different way that he treats a far more genuine threat like North Korea, right, where he's all about diplomacy, right, because they actually have some weapons that could do them some harm. And this compared to Saddam Hussein, whose military budget was one-tenth of one percent the United States was, and who he'd had confirmation that they had no military capacity. So this is a man who's very much into bullying and being harsh and destroying and all this kind of stuff, right? And then claims the ultimate virtue of being motivated by an all-loving Christian God and so on. But in this kind of situation, 
this is somebody whose rage has been very well polished and sublimated into a socially acceptable format where he talks about uh, his, his love of, of, of God and his love of the country and his desire to protect Americans and so on, yet he's you know, fully supporting 800 bases, poking sticks into the hornet's nest of Muslim extremism and so on. And so in these kinds of situations, this is somebody who's much more polished and who has a childhood that other people identify with, right? So there's lots of people who vote for George Bush uh, who were also raised as Christians and also raised as patriots and also raised with these love of crazy collective ideals. So they identify with him. What he's saying doesn't appear insane to them. And in Germany, people were raised with the same kind of childhood that Hitler had. So when people are screaming at them and telling them that they, only, they owe all of their blood to the collective, they're familiar with that. They understand that. That's, you know, and, and because they're familiar with it and understand it, they don't challenge it. And because they don't challenge it, they, the power ends up growing until they do go, hey, something's wrong here. So, so then the same must have been true also for uh, uh, Hitler and Stalin. They must have had some release valve that allowed them to sublimate their own rage to the point that they could climb the political ladder. I don't think that would be true of Hitler because Hitler's speeches were full of foaming rage as were Stalin's all the way from the beginning and Stalin was a known murderer in his teens as was Saddam Hussein as was Fidel Castro it's just that nobody saw anything particularly wrong with that because their own childhood had been so abusive okay so in that case it's not it's not that the society is closed off to their to their problem it's just that the whole society is suffering from the same exact problem and so it doesn't look any different well and they want to cover it up right so if they say to Stalin you had a bad childhood but he had the same childhood they did then they have to say I had a bad childhood and they don't want to do that right so things get worse and worse and worse because this has to be acted out this has to become real this trauma has to become real things get worse and worse and worse until 40 million people are dead and then suddenly people say hey maybe there is such a thing as ethics after all Okay. Uh, I'm not I'm saying still... I'm going to convince you of this. I'm not <laughs> saying it's syllogistical, right? Uh, actually, 39 million dead. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, that's true. Uh, sorry, Nils has uh, just corrected that. Right, right. Yeah. Now, t but tell me what it is that you have. I'm sure the difficulties you have with the theory are not yours alone, so feel free to, I mean, this is just a theory, right? So feel free to, to poke All it right. because I want to make sure it makes sense. Well, I'm just trying to, to um, bring the two sides together in the middle now. The, 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 the you know, the, 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 let's say that, okay, Stalin was abused as a child and nobody would acknowledge his, um, nobody would acknowledge his suffering, right? Right. Um, so, but the, but the abuse had to be, significant enough that he would want to turn that abuse against everyone around him, but not significant enough to um, just go out in a, an immediate blaze of glory. Yeah, I mean, the, the sadism, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's a more calculated sadism than what goes on in Columbine, but that's only because America is far healthier than Russia was at the turn of the last century. I mean, for all the problems that we poke at the West, it's still the healthiest society in the world, and in some ways is a lot more healthy than it was 400 years ago, right? Separation of church and state, even 200 years ago. 
But, uh, yeah, if, if the abuse has occurred and nobody's saying that it's wrong, then it's going to continue to escalate until people say something is wrong. Something is wrong here. And these, these, these two cultures that we're looking at, sort of Germany and, uh, and Russia in the early parts of the early to mid-20th century, the history of child raising was, you know, beat them until they obey. Scream at them until they obey. Parents have absolute authority over children, and children are evil by nature and must be forced to conform through brutalized uh, physical violence or emotional violence. And, and nobody says that that's wrong and that's a deviation and that shouldn't occur uh, and because they all went through the same thing and nobody can look at themselves honestly and objectively because it's a very difficult thing to do, as we all know, who are working in this kind of uh, environment. But these terrible things did occur, and they're going to get acted out against a population that refuses to label them as extreme. I would say that Stalin's childhood was probably worse than, as Hitler's was, than the average Russian or German. But it was close enough in the general methodology of parenting that people could not resist their kind of authority. Right? And so in, in uh, America, uh, people don't usually get the crap beaten out of them or screamed at in the way that the Germans and the Russians did in the early to mid-20th century. But there's a lot of addiction to universal abstracts that are considered to be moral, like the God and country. And there's this crazy patriotism and, and crazy religious uh, strongholds in America. And so what do they end up with? Well, they end up with a president who conforms and appeals to all of these collectivist ideals and with whom there is a lot of veiled or hidden punishment in the background. That's not obvious, right? Mussolini dragged people out of their homes and shot them in the streets, right? Saddam Hussein supposedly uh, put to people in vats of acid, right? That's pretty, that's pretty upfront. Right? And that has a lot to do with the kind of parenting that these people experienced. But in the West, and particularly in America, the conformity that is demanded of children is done through sort of through an upfront kind of niceness or, or respectability, but there's an enormous amount of both emotional and physical potential violence in the background that's not obvious, it's not upfront, which is why it's sort of hard to see it. Uh, and the same thing, of course, is, tr is true in America, right? The violence occurs overseas. The violence is in the laws, but people obey, and therefore people think that there's a voluntary cooperation. But uh, these things will continue to escalate until such time as we say, yeah, Christianity is child abuse. Yes, patriotism is child abuse. Yes, uh, adherence to authority in any form that is not based on virtue is, is child abuse. And once we start to get that idea out there, then people will start to denormalize the kind of childhoods they had, and then they'll look at George Bush and see him relatively clearly. Like the crazy kind of fascistic guy who appeals to people emotionally and keeps the violence in a kind of semi-hidden way, which is wrong and should not exist, in sort of my, my opinion. So does that... So the, the only difference then between say Bush and Stalin is um, one, it's just a stylistic difference because of the difference in our overall social culture. Yeah, and I would say that Stalin's childhood was openly like drunken father, abusive mother, beaten black and blue, and probably you know raped. And so like, the, the childhoods that went on in, in most of these countries were, uh, and in the world, the majority of the world today, absolutely horrific. I mean, we can't even comprehend how bad these childhoods are. I mean, you see these kids rocking back and forth over these Muslim texts. Uh, you just know that they're living a completely horrifying and, and uh, deadly existence where any shred of a rationality or selfhood uh, it's just going to be crushed and beaten out of them. You see the women running, running around in these burqas, right? These are not people who've been allowed to choose for themselves in any way, shape, or form. And so they are dealing with these absolutely hor horrendous and wretched childhoods. 
the childhood abuse that goes on, say, in America is much more, um, I would say, subtle in a way. It's not as upfront in terms of beating, right? Like in the Muslim world, you beat your kids and it makes good sense, right? I mean, according to their ideas of parenting. And in the uh, in America, though, you you drag your kids to church, and if they don't want to come, you don't beat them, right? You don't take, I mean, rarely anyway, right? You don't beat your kids to come to church, but there's an enormous amount of emotional manipulation in it, an enormous amount of control from the parents, right? The withdrawal of affection, the uh, the scorn, the the hostility, the exclusionary tactics that the parents use. It's all more subtle and more hidden. What that does is it translates into an authoritarian government that very rarely shows its hand. Right? It very rarely shoots students in Kent State. And uh, in England, it very rarely uh, seems to uh, be involved in the deaths of people who are exposing that they knew that there were no WMDs before the invasion. It's more subtle and it's more uh, sort of behind the scenes because that's what's occurring in the childhoods. Right? And until we start to denormalize that, the childhoods and the governments are going to keep getting worse until people sort of go, okay, well, there's now enough horror that I'm going to see it and I'm going to stop it. And at least my goal is to try and get some word out there so we can kind of head that off at the pass. Right. So, so I, guess what, I guess what my problem really is then is uh, a distinction between – is not to, to draw a distinction between uh, American culture now and German culture then, but, but more to try and figure out what the trigger is between, say, a guy like George Bush who makes it all the way to the presidency and a guy like Harris who goes – Ape shit and kills everyone around him. You know, like, like, what's the difference between a guy in Germany in the 1920s who, you know, dr drinks himself into a stupor and shoots himself in the head versus a guy like Hitler who climbs the political ranks? Right, right. Well, I would say it has something to do with skill and ability for sure. It has something to do with the depth of rage as well. It also has something to do with the level of self-awareness. Right, Hitler had no awareness of himself. That's why he acted out against the whole world. Right, he was never the problem. It was always, you know, the Jews or, or whatever the, the, who were the problem. So he had no ability, seemingly, to reflect upon his own life. Whereas somebody who ends up shooting themselves might have a little bit more self-reflection from that standpoint. So I would say that it's it's tough to know exactly what it is, but I would also say that it, it is the degree of horror within the childhood relative to the degree of horror in everyone's childhood or more or less everybody's in the society. So if you have a horrifying childhood and everyone else in your society has a horrifying childhood and you have particular skills and abilities and drives and ambitions that can get you to the top, then you're going to go that route. But the guys in Columbine had a far worse childhood than everybody else's, but everyone else had a bad enough childhood that they could not recognize what was going on for the Columbine kids, so they ended up getting, uh, you know, coming to school with guns, right? Because they needed, this horror was going to come out one way or another, and we either ask about it and have sympathy towards it, or we're going to end up uh, with guns pointed at us from those who we refuse to sympathize with. So uh, that, that to me is a little bit, uh, hopefully it helps uh, delineate it a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's at least a good start for me. I'm still kind of working it through, but I won't belabor it. Now, uh, uh, um, Niels has asked, uh, Steph, can you say something about the fact that they do not want to admit things to themselves, like that they are projecting, because how could you deal with someone once you recognize it? Uh, do, you, uh, I've, uh, do you want to say uh, a little bit more about that, Niels? I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, suppose the, the children in the high school who are clearly expressing uh, 
emotions from their views or things like that. Suppose you would observe that. How could you handle that with that? Because I would seem would seem that if you would go to someone and you 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 explain your observation, that they would deny it, right? Well, I think you're right, and the way that I would approach it is not to ask them to have sympathy for the Columbine kids. Or let's just say, if I was going to the average high school kid, uh, I would uh, sort of ask them not to have sympathy for the freaks, because that's not going to help, right? I mean, the quote freaks. What I would ask them is about their own history and their own childhood, because we can't have any more uh, sympathy for others than we have for ourselves, right? We can't have any more empathy for others than we have for ourselves. It's sort of logically impossible. And so the first thing that I would do is ask him about their own childhoods and their own histories and how much independence and uh, respect that they had as children and how much people valued them and thought that they were great and all this kind of stuff. And then once you got them to understand that their own childhoods may have been problematic, then they are going to start, I think, in time to be able to understand that other people's childhoods are problematic. And it's a very, very difficult thing to experience. Once you look at six billion people in the world uh, all having these wretched, wretched childhoods, with you know some minor exceptions and so on, but certainly nothing statistically relevant and it's a big problem to face, uh, you do really get sort of the, uh, the scream of the world, right? You do really get the horror that is most people's existence when growing up throughout the world. Uh, less so in the West, of course, but still to some significant degree. But as soon as people can look at their own childhoods, not relative to, well, other people had worse childhoods, but relative to the ideal that they needed as individuals with natures that were wanted to be logical and happy and free, then they can start to empathize with their own histories, and through that they can begin to empathize uh, with other people's histories. So I wouldn't get them to sort of say, well, you've got to be nice to the freaks. I'd get them to say, well, uh, what was your history like? And once they start to understand the, the issues within their own history, they can then start to understand the issues of other people's histories as well. Uh, well, I actually meant to, 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 to ask if you see somebody expressing these things like uh, piercings, or if someone is uh, like a friend of mine who I now have received an email from since a long time, where it's very clear that they have problems in their youth, but uh, and they're expressing it in an indirect way, you know. Yeah. Uh, another yeah. example could be uh, suppose they're constantly trying to make people feel better and never dealing with their own emotions. Uh, how, would you, how would you, what would be a good way to, to help s such a person to look into themselves? Well, um, the first thing that you need to get them to do is donate an enormous amount of money to Freedom Aid Radio. But that's true of just about anything. But, uh, no, in all seriousness, what I would do with people like that, and the question, Christina just had to leave for a moment, the question is how do you get somebody uh, to recognize that they have issues and need to whatever, right? Do you deal with them in some way, and what should you do? And I'll sort of mention, if Christina wants to add something, she will. But the first thing you need to do, in my opinion, is to, uh, to tell them that, uh, to tell them about how you feel. Not, not about what's wrong with them or anything like that, but, you know, I feel 
that uh, uh, discomfort or sadness or upset uh, or whatever. Like I feel that something's up with you that's not making you happy, that there's a problem that you could be happier, that you could be better off. I feel uh, sympathy towards you. I understand, you know, and I want, I want to sort of understand what's going on for you. And then just sort of, you have to be a little bit persistent because people are very suspicious when you start talking like that, like you're sort of trying to get them or something like that or, or be superior. And so you need to have empathy for them. And then I would say that my particular goal would be to try and get them to a competent therapist, right? Because, you know, you, you can say to someone, you look pale, you look unwell, you should go and see a doctor, right? But I would not be the person who would take on everybody's problems myself because it takes quite a lot of specific training uh, to be able to deal with people's psychological issues, um, none of which I've had. But uh, don't uh, don't worry about my uh, well. Of course, I don't debate people one on one about their psychological issues unless invited. But um, that uh, you know, just say recognize that something's wrong with the person. That you feel concerned about them in a sympathetic way. Ask them to talk. But it very much is like sort of noticing that somebody has a huge growth on their back, right? It's like you have a growth on your back. It's bad. Uh, I'm concerned, and you need to get to a specialist. But um, the, the, the thing you're talking about right now, is that something you could also try yourself? Because basically what they need to do is they need to face their own past. And a good way of that is just talking about it. And then what you could do is to mirror that, to say, yeah, I understand uh, this and this emotions. I, I, have, I have had similar... I, I think, sorry, Niels, it's Christina speaking. I think that... Uh, we can all offer some. Sorry, I lost my earphones. Uh, I think we can all offer some support and some empathy uh, toward other people, but therapy is very, very complicated. So um, I would just urge people not to try and be a therapist, um, be a friend, be supportive, be open to other people's uh, thoughts and feelings. But really, when we're looking at profound, deep emotional issues, uh, direct them to a therapist or a couple professional. And somebody who has a significant amount of emotional dysfunction is going to be very, very difficult to deal with. And it does really take a professional. I mean, Christina studied this for, uh, I think, two weeks. Um, and uh, I, I think you say longer than that, don't you, uh, pretty much? Six years of education and then an additional five years of supervised training. Right. So more than a decade of education and supervised training in order to be able to figure out people's defenses, to work around them, knowing when to be confrontational and when to be sympathetic. Uh, because you really only get one shot, right? I mean, you, you don't get a lot of chances to try and help people. And I, I myself don't feel particular. I mean, I don't try and be anyone's therapist, right? Um, but uh, just try and get people into uh, somebody who's got real experience. And this doesn't mean that every therapist is great, right? They, they need to get to a therapist and find someone that they're comfortable with, which is a complicated business. That's something they need to, need to pursue. But I think uh, I certainly wouldn't feel comfortable trying to be uh, somebody's therapist. It is a very uh, complicated uh, situation, needing to know exactly the right approach with the person, uh, whether it's medically based, whether they need uh, medication, uh, uh, whether, uh, you know, their ego strength at particular times about what they can handle in terms of uh, confrontation versus sympathy and so on. Knowing when sympathy is going to do more harm than good, right, because there are times when people really need to be confronted rather than have sympathy applied to them. And there are other times when sympathy is much more appropriate, and that's why it's such a complicated business to save a soul in this way. So... Uh, I definitely would uh, take the approach of not 
uh, trying to be a therapist uh, any more than I would say amble up to someone and say, uh, I can, I've got a spoon, I can help you out with that appendix. Yeah, that, that sounds very good, uh, of course. But um, there's always this worry, you know, uh, because the state of the world is so awful. What can we expect of most uh, most of these professionals? You know, the, the, the big everybody's a statist. Everybody is uh, warm towards family. The, 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 the things you're talking about about uh, from Dr. Phil that certain things that he does completely wrong, like the children who got uh, beaten by their mother. And um, if, if you say to someone, well, you might look into uh, into therapy, well, of course they're going to look, if they're Christian, they're going to look for a Christian therapist uh, and so on. Because what they need is, what they need is somebody who has a healthy look on the on life, and which is very opposite of what they have. So, uh, Christian may go to a Christian therapist or a Christian counselor. That doesn't mean that they're going to, they could get some real benefits from going to a Christian counselor or a Christian therapist. Um, but the kind of revolution in, in, in the individual or in the self that needs to happen, I mean, it's very rare that it does happen. And, you know, even I see people, it's very, it's time consuming, it's lengthy, it's costly, and most people don't have the tolerance to do it anyway. Uh, a lot of people are just looking for symptom relief, and, and that's the unfortunate state, and you're absolutely right. The world, the world uh, does need uh, more competent therapists and, and more openness to, to the kind of changes in, in individual, I guess, humanity. Yeah, I mean, there is a revolution that is needed in the world, and I guess we're doing our part to try and move ideas forward that can help with that. But uh, you're right. I mean, the only thing that I would say, though, that if somebody is a Christian and chooses to go to a Christian therapist, they will get some symptom relief. Right, there will be some improvement, but mostly, uh, it's what Freud used to say, that all I can do is, he would say to a lot of his patients, all I can do is return you to an ordinary state of unhappiness and conformity. Right? I mean, that, I can get you from wanting to throw yourself off a building to merely being semi-miserable around the dinner table with your family. Right? That's, that's the best that I can do for you, and I, I, mean, I mean, he was Jewish, so he compromised himself, but, uh, so that's, that's the best that he could hope for, for his patients, and obviously so for himself. But uh, that is what most people can, um, can expect to get out of therapy. There are a few hardy souls like us who are willing to sail further on into the ice flows to look for the, uh, the undreamt of paradise, the, the island in the middle of the iceberg uh, with the palm trees on it. But uh, these, uh, these, few, uh, these are very few people. And uh, if somebody really does have significant dysfunction in their history, they don't need to have a purely rational therapist because once they get in touch with their feelings, they will experience some relief and they will probably evolve at least to an ordinary level of conformity, which is what most people can hope for. My particular therapist was a mystic, but I just didn't talk about mysticism with her. What she was great at, though, was understanding instincts, and, uh, uh, and, and she was also great at dream analysis. So uh, I got an enormous amount of benefit out of a counselor or a therapist who did not share my epistemological or metaphysical beliefs, but had particular value in what it is that I had a problem with, right? So to some degree, you can get your appendix taken out by a mystic, you just, uh, sorry, by, uh, by a, uh, a statist doctor, but uh, you can't get it taken out by a witch doctor, I guess you should say. So 
getting people into therapy is going to help them for sure, as long as they find a therapist that they're willing to talk to and be open to. But, so you're right, it still isn't going to get them to be purely rational, but they're going to have more of a shot at it if they go to a therapist than if they just talk to one of us. Part of what we do as therapists is we, we encourage people to look at reality. What are the facts of reality and deal, deal with their lives within reality and to break some of the illusions that they have about, uh, about other people and themselves in the world. Um, again, does that mean that everybody's going to come out being a complete rationalist? No, but maybe they'll get some... Maybe they'll start to see things a little differently and begin to make some small changes, and that's the best that we can hope for, some small changes that will that will sort of snowball over time. Yeah, because, of course, they're going to raise children a little bit more rationally. I don't think it's going to be purely uh, an intergenerational process. I think it's going to be faster than that. But, uh, you know, at the very worst, what we're going to do is uh, help uh, incremental improvements across generations, and uh, sometimes we do have to be that patient. All right. Well, thanks so much, everyone, for, uh, for listening. Uh, if there's nothing else that anybody wants to add, we'll uh, wrap it up now. Is there anything that uh, people wanted to add at this point? No? No, no. Going once. Bueller, Ferris, Bueller, Bueller, anyone? Well, right. well, so, I, sorry, go ahead. I, ha I had a whole other uh, uh, argument on the, on the rise of evil, but uh, it, it would probably go on way too long so we can... All right, we'll save it for next week for sure. Uh, I think it's a very, uh, it's a fascinating topic, and I appreciate the questions. They certainly do help me push the ideas a little bit further forward. And uh, so uh, do save them for next week if you don't mind. Uh, but, uh, yeah, thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Uh, uh, of course, uh, we look forward to chatting with you next week. And uh, I hope you're all enjoying the new server. Uh, it's nice and fast and uh, uh, very responsive. And, of course, uh, people, I haven't get, got emails every day with people saying downloads are interrupted and all that, so that's good. Uh, so uh, thanks so much for listening, and have yourselves a fantastic week. I will talk to you all next Sunday.